Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary temporary experts. Experts. This week's topic is Cannabis. Because it's in the news. Sort of. Sort of. (laughs) Uh, But first, updates from last time. Ooh, updates. All right, so we had a few unanswered questions, as per usual. Um... So, where do we want to start? We want to start with Niagara Falls? Let's start with Niagara Falls. Okay, so we, we were spitting some facts, some straight facts about uh, <laughs> Niagara. Uh, and I had recalled there was a period of time where they had, like, shut off one of the falls. And I think we were both pretty certain that that had been, like, during our lifetime. Well, there was definitely a time when the falls stopped running during our lifetime. You say definitely, I but do. then when we went to research this, you couldn't find any definitive proof. All right, so. maybe next time there'll be an update to the updates yeah. section, yeah. <laughs> as we, I do it earlier. We were able to find, though, that in 1969, the U.S. side, which is the uglier side of Niagara Falls. Oh, fighting words. <laughs> Shots fired. Um, so the side that's on, on Buffalo, New York, was uh, temporarily shut off because, like, that side, if you've ever seen Niagara Falls, is, like, a lot rockier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there had been some significant, like, landslides and rock slides. So they were uh, clearing out some of the rock debris and stuff that was there because they anticipated it was going to contribute, like, to further erosion and stuff like that. that so they, they diverted the falls or they shut it off. I don't know. Yeah. 1969. 1969. When they landed on the moon, shutting off <clears throat> massive waterfalls that have run for tens of thousands of years <laughs> and uh, and going to the moon. Big year. Big year. Big year for the States. <laughs> uh, and then the power power plants, power stations oh, yes. At, yes. at Niagara Falls. We weren't sure. So there was the Edward Dean Adams power plant, which was the one built in 1895. Uh, and that one was decommissioned or stopped being used in uh, 1961. That plant was closed. There's now uh, at least one of the buildings left as a historic site. Um, And then on the Canadian side, the main ones are the Adam Beck Power Stations, one and two. So lots of atoms. Every time you said Adam Beck, all I can think of is like the artist Beck. Yeah, I also think of the artist Beck. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Some power mm -hmm. plant names. I'm sure you were just dying to know. Yeah. And the real, the real gem of an update from last episode, uh, the earliest record, archaeological record of the gear. Oh, the gear. The when gear, was it? Uh, in 4th century China is the earliest archaeological evidence of a gear. Uh, then there's some stuff about like in the, in 1207 uh, there was like um, the first like wheel and cog mechanism oh. was sort of, that's like the first archaeological effort. like there's some evidence of it being invented then, uh, and then there's some like very early like surviving like clocks and things like that that ran off gears. So there you go. Nice. Gears been around for a long time. And it, yeah, and I think you had sort of stipulated last week that you were pretty sure it was something that like a lot of people had probably come up with over the years and that's yeah. kind of like the same thing that seems to come up yeah. in the searching for it. As Someone it were. was like, ah, a circle with divots, you know? Yeah, and those that's that's what a cog is. I was oh. when I was researching this. It's the cog <laughs> is the part that sticks out. That's like and like the teeth essentially. Oh, that's okay. The cog, yeah. Cool. Yeah, there you go. But Davis, there's why well, there's there's a couple more things we are, haven't touched on yet. Are there? Yeah. 
we we weren't sure what the slogan of Las Vegas was. Oh, right. It was very, very important. Right, yes. I think you said uh, the jewel of the desert. Or yeah, and I was just taking a stab in the dark. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe I was making a bid for, you know, that I should be the one that comes up with slogans for, for cities. That oh. was my, that was my, like, contest entry. Of course. Um, yes. So, as you might expect... <laughs> Uh, I couldn't find ones that like from like the early days of Vegas. Right. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. I'm, I think I'm sure you could find them. I, mean, I don't know when like city slogans really became like a big thing. It's like a huge thing now. Like yeah. every city has their stupid slogan. Like, <laughs> On their license plate. Uh, well, that's more usually like the jurisdiction, like the province, right? Yeah. So Alberta is the province. Ontario is the province. Like right. um, cities. Yeah. Cities always have one these days. Like even small towns have them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like the town of Hannah in Alberta here. It's a really small town, like north of Edmonton. And their slogan is like birthplace of Nickelback because that's like oh, their big claim gosh. to fame. Yeah, uh, it's always about a birthplace. But usually if you're like a really small town like that. Yeah. Yeah. But the one that we typically associate with Vegas is the yeah. uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Which which I kind of forgotten was like their le- that was their legitimate like on the sign coming oh, in. Oh, I didn't know tour- that. <laughs> their like tourism <laughs> slogan. Like that was like approved by the Vegas Board of Tourism. Like that's the slogan. Come here for memories you'll have forever that you can never tell anyone about. Yeah. And they, so yeah, so then they changed that. I think it was like in 2003, they changed it to, um, no, it was later than that. It was in the 2010s, but they changed it to, uh, what, what happens in Vegas can only happen in Vegas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What you can do here, you can only do here. Yeah. They're trying to like, and this is something like Vegas has done in the last two decades, especially because like it had the really like, yeah, the Sin City, um, reputation. And then that really, like, especially after 2008, like, Vegas had a really hard time recovering, right? Because financial crisis in 2008, all of a sudden people aren't spending money on these types of frivolous things anymore. Uh, And it really kind of lost, like, it couldn't survive as, like, an adult's playground anymore. Mm -hmm. So they've really, in recent years, like, tried to rebrand themselves as, like, a family um, Mm -hmm. tourist destination. So, and then there you go. There we go. Now we know. And the most important update question... That I'm sure everyone is wondering about. No, no, don't do this to me. It's we're uh, getting close to Christmas. It's really busy. You said I don't you have said, time like, for this. Last time you said your producer oh, had right. taken That's your volcano right. song, the volcano song. Everyone, he said he'd write on a banjo, even though he doesn't have a banjo. I have a banjo. Oh, well, then. I own a banjo. I'm just not very good at playing it. Oh, I'm not okay. good enough to write a song on it yet. All right, well, <laughs> there we go. I guess there's yeah. no song. We gave my brother a banjo for like Christmas last year. I see, I'll see if he's any good at it this Ooh. year when he comes to visit. And then Excellent. maybe I'll get him to play the, we'll, we'll come up with it together. We'll be like, I was going to say Hall of Notes, but like they weren't, they weren't brothers. Um, okay. Like anyway. the Jackson 5, but only two of you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, some wonderfully modern references. I was going to make a really off-color joke about the Jackson 5. Um, yes. But yeah, so those are some of our updates. Uh, and Sarah throwing me <laughs> under the bus once more for my. Uh, I have committed ever... to doing it every time. So, I know, well, yeah. uh, <laughs> but this anyway, means I have to feel guilty every time. Get anxious about every time we record. I'm just really excited to one day hear it because I think it'll be wonderful and it'll help me remember all the facts about volcanoes that I have not remembered. Yeah, I know all the things I haven't retained. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, but before we continue, uh, we're continuing to run a promotion for our partner of ours. If the endless stream of doomsday news about climate change has you feeling hopeless, why not try a podcast featuring individuals who are making a difference? We recommend season two of Heat of the Moment, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds. 
Join host John D. Sutter as we hear stories of people around the world transforming the way we live, work, even eat, and learn what change is possible through the power of collective action. Find Heat of the Moment Season 2 on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, uh, so back to the show here. So what are we talking about today, Sarah? We are talking about cannabis uh, because... The marijuanas. Yep, the marijuanas. The sticky icky. The, the devil's lettuce. The devil's, my yeah, there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> I was trying to think of others before I just like defaulted to weed. Yeah, um, no. Devil's lettuce, best yeah. best name. Uh, but yeah, so in Canada, uh, cannabis was legalized in October 17th of 2018, or on October 17th, 2018. So we just passed our three-year cannabis anniversary. Cannaversary. I was going to, yeah, I was like, how do we... I feel like they also use that, though, for, like, when Canada has its <laughs> yeah. big, like, anniversaries, like the sequicentennial and stuff like that. Canada Cannabis. Canada Cannabis Anniversary. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. Canadian Cannabis Anniversary. Well, you need another C word in there, otherwise it's not a real... Real good tongue twister. I'll work on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next week. Yeah. yeah. October 17th. 2018 it was a fun weekend um, <laughs> so we thought we would kind of look back at cannabis through the ages and the effect <laughs> it has on the body and uh, the effects of legalization and how all of our understanding has evolved yeah absolutely and i mean cannabis is like an interesting like it's an interesting topic especially because like in the states it you know in canada uh it's just sort of like a blanket legalization like across the whole country uh and in the states it's still like it's very like federally it's still schedule one yeah. but then there's all these states that have like legal cannabis laws and it creates all these interesting like intricacies in the law yeah, and like super you can be charged federally but you can't be charged like in those local jurisdictions yeah. but like people still are and, all. and then the dea is a federal enforcement agency so they can kind of do whatever they want and it's a whole thing but uh, it's a whole thing yeah we'll get into that a little bit later but that's why it's so kind of interesting to talk about this and it's sort of becomes a bit of a framework when the conversation comes about like other illicit substances and then how we criminalize substance use uh, in our society or how some substances are criminalized for use, but others with this like longstanding history of use just sort of become like very acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think we'll jump into some history. Ooh, history. Ooh. I know like it's been kind of history heavy in the last few episodes, but hey, hist- not- I always find history very interesting and it like, it's very important to inform uh, whatever subject matter you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was someone when I was younger, I thought I didn't like history because of the way it was always presented. Mm-hmm. And you're told that history is boring and that people who like history are boring. So I didn't want to like history. So I never tried. And then as I got yeah. older, I was like, history is just stories. And it's stories of how we became who we are and like how how we got the ideas that we got and why we got the ideas we got. And like, I think studying theater really helped this because as you look at a play, you have to look at the historical context it was written in or you won't understand the play Mm-hmm. in any sort of detail level. So the history is important and history of science is very rarely taught, especially within like a regular hist- or regular science yeah. class. You just know the fact. And I think it's important to know the history of this stuff. It's because uh, history doesn't make good factory workers, which is what our school system is designed to do. Uh, moving on. More uh, shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I came I came with, uh, with a loaded gun. Lots of ammunition <laughs> in this one. Um, yeah, so let's, uh, let's, let's, we'll just take it down a notch you know for a second and uh we're going to talk about cannabis and hemp through the ages through the ages ages. uh so cannabis traces back to the ancient world Uh, i found a bunch of different uh numbers here researching this topic can be a little difficult you have to be very wary of which sources you're using because there's a lot of like non-scientific sources 
right? Yeah. Like, I, and, did you run into that, Davis? Oh, yeah. And, like, even, like, compared to 10 years ago, if you were to do, like, research into this subject. Because now, especially in Canada, like, there are so many legal um, sources or, like, it's, you know, so there's so many sources of information on it. Like, everybody took a stab at writing about this at one yeah. point. Like, there's tons of, like, so you get everything ranging from the, like, like the pot shop, like these are the terpenes that are good for you, dude. It's the miracle drug that all, solves yeah. all your problems and has no downside. And like all the way up to like really rigorous, like scientific research. And a lot of it, we, it which is like fairly available as well. And like very recent too, which is always nice. Yes. Um, so you run the whole gambit of like this sort <laughs> of um, the, I guess the quality of scientific I guess, internet research. Which is also part of the reason I was interested in covering this, because it can be a difficult thing to research and find, like, really credible information for. Mm -hmm. uh, so, all that to say, there were a lot of different sources to look into, and uh, there were dates saying that cannabis traces back anywhere from five to 10,000 years ago, typically in the form of hemp. So an article from a geology journal, or the geology journal, uh, was talking about hemp and retting and figuring out through the archaeological record, that part's not important. Well, that's a quote. Hemp is one of the earliest cultivated plants. Its high adaptability allowed it to spread worldwide, perhaps through a co-evolution with mankind. Hemp can therefore be considered as a fundamental plant in human history. Indeed, the development of all civilizations has relied on its many uses, as foodstuff, the seeds, medicine and intoxication, the resin, and overwhelmingly for making ropes, textile, and paper, the fibers. So it's a, it's a plant with a ton of uses. There's some people claim it was the first... Um, like agricultural crop? <laughs> yes, thank you. The first like agricultural crop, the first one that we were really cultivating. That's the word I was trying to find. Mm -hmm. um, because it did have so many uses and it grows relatively quickly and it's easy to grow in the right like latitude. Hence, hence its name weed because it grows like a weed oh man from. yeah <laughs> that's right uh, yeah so we have been we have had a relationship with cannabis and with hemp for a long 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 time as human beings and it also has potential as a bioenergy crop mm -hmm. which i'll touch on a bit again later and then in the uh a fun fact is in the 1600s the u.s government of the time actually uh, encouraged and even required farmers in some places to grow hemp. Mm -hmm. Which, because, yeah. yeah, it was a really good, solid material. Used a lot for making, like, ship sails and, like yeah. I said, rope and things. Things you need to build other things. If you've ever worn any, like, hemp clothing or seen hemp clothing, it's very, it's a very heavy material. It's like... Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like the opposite of linen. <laughs> yeah, and, like, even, like, the way, like, that linen is kind of, like, like scratchy, but it's a very, like, light and breathable material. Yeah, it's like, a very heavy scratchy. Yeah, exactly. Hemp is kind of, like, the opposite end of that. Mm -hmm. But that's why it makes such good rope. It's very it's durable. Very, very durable. And you like, and then again, it grows very quickly. So it's easy to like, you know, grow it for these purposes versus like trees and things like that. Absolutely. And uh, it was actually even used as a widely as a medicine, as a patient medicine. The quotes I found were from the US, but in the US from the, or in the 19th and earliest 20th centuries, and was even described in the United States pharma, pharmacopoeia for the first time in 1850. So again, we did not always think that this was the devil's lettuce. And talking about that high tensile strength of, of hemp and the hemp plant, in 1916, they started really making paper from hemp. This is something they'd kind of done before, but they really got the process going better in 1916. Uh, and this is partially because uh, when you make paper from hemp, you get a pretty high yield. You use the stem of the, of the hemp plant, which is, it's 
there there's a lot of stem <laughs> there's a lot of stem for the plant um and the plant has high cellulose content in its stem which helps to create a very strong fiber that also requires less bleaching and fewer dangerous chemicals compared to making wood paper paper mm-hmm. from wood yeah just quickly to kind of like discuss the plant like yes. the marijuana plant uh so yeah hemp we typically associate with like the uh the stems uh, it's the big woody part, and it was what you can pulp down and things like that. Yeah. And then the part that people traditionally consider like weed or cannabis or marijuana, whatever you're... He's, you know, he's doing lots of air quotes. Yeah, whatever <laughs> whatever your slang word of choice is. I mean, cannabis is sort of like, an, like the accepted scientific term for it. Um, but that part generally is the bud of the flower. Yes. That's what people are, that's what people are smoking. Um, that's what has to be dried. That's why you might hear it called bud or flower, mm-hmm. because it literally is the flower bud yeah exactly yeah sorry just so just so you kind of visualize the plant um and that's like helpful i was not going to say what that, it so. what it's you know <laughs> and which parts of it are used for what and stuff like that um but then obviously and then obviously the leaves are kind of more leaves aren't super useful for certain things but they just that's kind of the iconography is comes yeah. from the shape of the leaf it's a very um i'm sure you've seen it yeah it's a very <laughs> iconic shape i always think of there's a there's a that 70s show episode where they like i was wondering to, if you were gonna mention yeah that. i know i actually didn't think about it but uh where they go and paint they want to paint a giant weed leaf on oh. the water tower because like i was one of those kids who had like no idea that that's what they were doing in the oh. show like when they would sit in a circle and like like they, 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 the camera would like go around they would yeah. all have like reactions they were smoking pot and i didn't know that for like, like till i was an the adult room is like hazy if yeah. you haven't seen it if you watch some of it now like the early episodes you're like how the hell did i miss this because yeah like there's like smoke rising out of the center and they're all laughing and stuff um but they go to paint a marijuana leaf on the side of the water tower in town and they like get the proportions all wrong so it just looks like the water tower is given like a big green middle finger and it's like kind of the joke of the whole episode but anyway so just to say suffice to say that it's a pretty iconic uh, shape yes in Canada, if you uh, you have to like we said to like draw the flag when we were kids. Oh my god! And if you, I always if you draw the flag wrong, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you draw maple leaf wrong, which is a hard thing for a child to do, because the maple leaf has five like points on it, but it has two tiny points at the bottom. So if you want to be accurate, you end up drawing seven. Five and if you... points. What Canadian flag are you drawing? It is, it is three, and then it has five. Well, and then, like, right? the individual little ridges of, like, the maple leaf. It's, like, yeah. nine or something. Because there's a way to draw a maple leaf, like, really well. It's, like, you put the, you draw, you, like, put a little <laughs> dot or a line where all the points are, and then you you kind of connect them all. Yes. Okay. Uh, disregard my numbers for the, this leaf. <laughs> Sarah's um, never seen a maple leaf before. <laughs> Whenever I see them, they're crunchy. I'm, I'm, just, I'm jumping in a pile of Sarah leaves. Doesn't, never... Yeah, Sarah doesn't see maple leaves. She only sees cannabis leaves. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, there is a plant called sinkfoil that is supposed to be a five-leaf plant. I got distracted as I was talking about mm. maple leaf thinking about sinkfoil. Sure, it's, it's called, sure. <laughs> it's called sure. sinkfoil because sank in French is five. Um, so it's supposed to have five, but I was out uh, doing a research project. It was total tangent uh, in my undergrad with a master's student. And uh, we had to like identify plants in this one area to determine if we could re-release a certain butterfly because it needed certain types of plants. And we found sinkfoil. But it had seven leaves, and it's it's similar enough to the cannabis leaf that it was like, is this just wild cannabis growing? And it wasn't the right, like, form of plant, but it was very confusing because we're like, it can't be sinkfoil. Sinkfoil has five leaves. And then we looked it up, and it was like, oh, sinkfoil can have anywhere from, like, three to nine. And I was like, a stupid name for a plant. But anyway... All of that to say, you know what the leaf looks like. <laughs> Good. Uh, so... <laughs> that was quite the tangent. I, I have nothing to add to your story about butterflies and misidentified plants. 
Good, good. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Uh, Yeah, so we're talking about uh, things you can use the plant for, uh, and they started using it for paper. Mm -hmm. And um, so paper, there's another quote, paper produced from hemp contains thrice... Thrice is a good word. It's a great word. It's an underutilized word. (laughs) So yeah, paper produced from hemp contains thrice as much cellulose as others, and from one hectare of hemp, quadruple amount of paper can be produced compared with one hectare of forest. How old is this paper that they really didn't want to use, like triple or quadruple? Like, I guess they used older, and it's also it was it was a translation. So these are Uh, words that someone else I think chose to put in the in the random. There's some weird sentence structure, but. They just did it so well. Yeah, uh, and then, paper. moreover, hemp can be reused just four months after cropping. So, like, you grow some hemp, you cut it down. Four months later, you could have mature hemp plants again, mm-hmm. compared to trees, which require 20 to 80 years, depending on the tree you're using. Mm-hmm. And hemp paper is much more durable and lasts a lot longer compared to wood paper, which we all know decomposes and yellows with age. Yes, that's because of the acids that are typically in wood paper. You can get, like, acid-free paper these days, too. Ah. Like, those moleskin notebooks are usually acid-free because that's, like, kind of one of their... That's kind of one of their marketing points is that, like, your your paper won't degrade. But, yeah, um, paper does degrade yes. by acids. And hemp paper degrades less because mm-hmm. it's nice and durable with it all is, that cellulose. I was going to say, it is, like, a heavier bond, though, too. Bond yeah. is sometimes a word that's used for to describe, like, the thickness of a paper. Yeah. Um, I know because I bought really cheap printer paper from Staples mm. because I'm cheap and I wanted to save like a dollar on 400 sheets of paper yeah. and now I'm like why did I do this it's like the crappiest paper ever it's like Your basically it. it's like base no the printer the printer handles are fine but it basically is like tissue paper like you hold it up to the light and it's see-through and like you can't do double-sided as soon as you put ink on it the whole thing like curls um yeah it's really terrible but so there you go. Life my lesson little, from Davis. My little PSA. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not print. I'm not like, I don't like, I only print in black and white and like, I don't print that much. So it was, it was still worth it to save a couple of bucks, <laughs> but dollar. it does. It's one of those things you don't think about it. Like you, I've watched like years and years of the office. So you don't think of the quality of the paper, but it makes a difference. <laughs> it does make a difference. Uh. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, moving on from that in, uh. Yeah, this is the this is the interesting one. Yeah. I, we're going to the meaty, meaty near modern history. Um, so. You know Henry Ford, right, Davis? Oh, of course. I think everybody knows Henry Ford. And his Ford. classic Model T car. Oh, yes. So absolutely. he wasn't just making that car, though. He was making other cars. And they actually designed a car that was partially made from hemp. So, like, really highly compressed hemp. And I think there was flax and there was there's still, like, petroleum-type products and plastics and stuff in there. But mm-hmm. partially made from hemp and it ran on hemp oil. Whoa. Which is pretty neat. Yeah, I had never heard of this. Um, pretty cool, right? It's a... Uh, it was... Another quote. Uh, In the 30s, Ford opened a plant in Michigan where they successfully experimented with biomass fuel conversion, proving that hemp could be used as an alternative to fossil fuels. They extracted methanol, charcoal, fuel, tar, pitch, ethyl acetate, and... Creosote. Creosote, thank you. Creosote. Never mind. C-R-E-O-S-O-T-E. All from hemp. So Ford could now not only produce their own raw materials to make cars, but could make the fuel to run them on as well. Which is pretty dang cool. Yeah, that's uh sorry, I was I was still thinking about creosite. Um uh, it is <laughs> it's creosite, it's just spelled with the O T E, which is hard. That's very cool. Um yeah, it really lines up like uh because that was Ford's whole thing. Like, um Ford had grown up kind of in not the shadow of the Rockefellers, but that was like the big money family in the mm. in the US was the Rockefellers. So the Rockefellers are famous because they created a horizontal, what's called like a horizontal monopoly over like oil. Um, so they had bought like all of one stage of production for oil. So they kind of owned like all the oil wells in uh-huh. the U.S. And then they that's where like a lot of the antitrust laws come from. So 
what Ford wanted to do was create what's called a vertical monopoly, where they wanted to control all of the aspects of what they needed to produce vehicles. Um, they wanted to own, like, they didn't want to own, you know, every factory or every, like, rubber plantation, but they wanted to own a piece, like, uh, the ability to do each of those things yeah. so that they were t entirely control of their own supply lines and like could set their own prices and stuff like that. So famously, um, Ford actually tried to grow like rubber trees in many parts of the oh. States and they never, like they don't take because they require very specific um, environments to grow in. But yeah, so that was what Ford was trying to do. So like it lines up a lot that like he would also try to innovate a way where they were entirely in charge of like making their own fuel and stuff like that. So very cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That scientific innovation, you know, like, and it can come from an economic desire, but can lead to a lot of interesting scientific yeah. discoveries and whatnot. I mean, and that's sort of like the legacy of Ford too is so connected to like World War II and all those sorts of things because of like some of the innovation and like mostly the innovation, even to the point more so the innovation of the factory system is really what Ford is famous for. We associate him with the automobile, but the big change was like. The, the factory with, line, right? The yeah. assembly line. That has contributed to the alienation of from our work, but that's uh, that's a Marx argument for another time. <laughs> and Moving the school on. system, yeah, that's like true. we yeah. brought up before. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so we had we have Ford doing all these great things in the '30s, like being like, "What can I use this plant for?" We got really durable paper. We can use all the parts of the hemp, the hemp or the cannabis plants. It's going really well. And then, bam, reefer is, madness. Whoa. In 1937, in the U.S., the federal marijuana, this is marijuana, but with an H in it, um, the federal marijuana tax act restricted cannabis use and sale. And it also restricted hemp, which is problematic. Um, industrial hemp was allowed or reallowed at different points, um, like in the 40s. I think I'll get to this later. But they started asking people to grow hemp because, again... World War, supply chain issues, we're all feeling that right now. We're not with the World War, but with the supply chain issues in general. Um, so the U.S. was like, hey, U.S. farmers, grow hemp because we can use it for lots of different textile stuff. Um, so it was eventually allowed or re-allowed. Currently, I think it's the States and Canada, uh, it has to have a THC content. We will get into THC in a bit and explain all what that means, but that's the like, psychoactive one. Uh, it has to have a THC concentration of not more than 0.3% on a dry weight basis. So this is incredibly low THC content. Um, I did a paper actually on industrial hemp in my undergrad because I found it fascinating. And what this means is you'd have to smoke, I didn't reread my paper, but you'd have to smoke like a football field's worth of industrial hemp in like an hour or something to feel any effect, which is impossible because that's a lot. And it, it was less than an hour, but... It was, you know, a silly amount. Uh, but this was, with industrial hemp, you also had to grow it a certain distance from miners. Like, if you were within a certain distance from a school, you weren't allowed to grow it, even though the the potency is so low. Um, but anyway, all of those things. And then, yeah, in the 40s, it was the Hemp for Victory program. That's actually what it was called. And uh, in the U.S., they actually encouraged farmers to plant hemp by giving out seeds and granting draft deferments to those who would stay home and grow hemp. Mm-hmm. 
But yes, now we come to the sordid history of the legalization of marijuana. The illegalization. Yeah, well, the illegal, yeah. So, <laughs> a um, story of racism, power, and money. <laughs> Sarah's very attached to some of the notes that she wrote for this. I am, um, as always. <laughs> yeah, we'll try to we'll try to cut through this pretty quick because because uh, we want to talk about the science we of, do. of marijuana and how it works. But a lot of um, a lot of what the legalization illegalization of marijuana is tied to is uh is racism in the united states and around the world uh yes. a lot of it has to do with like immigration from mexico in the 1910s and like mexican culture introducing the use of recreational marijuana into like the states and uh much as it is now it was then uh there was a lot of like anti-hispanic and anti-mexican sentiment in the states and uh marijuana use became a bit of a lightning rod around like these fears of uh of immigrants really there's not really any other way to put it um <laughs> yeah and it was, uh, yeah. the these anti-drug campaigners as pbs has put it uh would wa- were war- warning people against the encroaching marijuana menace and uh, stating that terrible crimes were attributed to marijuana and the Mexicans who used it. Mm-hmm. And this is where you start to get like more into the 1930s and 40s, but like you start to get these films about marijuana and the dangers of it. And like the really, really famous one is obviously like Reefer Madness. If you have not watched the Reefer Madness with Alan Cummings, please go watch it. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so, my yeah. musical plug. <laughs> well, yeah, and like Reefer Madness kind of like came back into yeah, because yeah, it came back into prominence, and then it was restored as well by as like a, a filmmaker it, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it became a cult classic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, and but that was like a real film that was yeah. produced. Like, and in today, you watch it with today's lens, and it's hilarious because it's like all this ridiculous, all these ridiculous it's like fear mongering so statements. The top. Yeah. Uh, but back then, that was like how they went about like um, changing public opinion on a lot of these different things. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, a lot of association of marijuana use with like jazz musicians, which was obviously big in the black community. Um, jazz and, and swing. Jazz and swing, and like associated Satan. with certain yeah, with certain um, less than puritanical behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so you get a lot of this like association with that, but a lot of it's driven by, like most things, you know, the fear tactic is what's used to convert kind of the masses against something like this. Yeah. Versus, but what's really happening is that it's it's people putting money behind these campaigns that allows like the wheels to turn on these things. And a lot of it was driven by the people who stood to lose the most should marijuana or hemp realist, really more hemp. This is, it's always really been more about hemp and the various uses of this plant. Um, mm-hmm. Even the terminology, like it was called cannabis for the most part until all of this started in the thirties. And then, yeah, they took marijuana as this this word and they stole it and they were like oh this is bad this is bad and people didn't even realize that it was the same plant as hemp yeah and it because it's it's a podcast you might not recognize that like why sarah is saying it marijuana weird like that is because it's spelt with an h i said that did you say that i don't remember yes Um, it's spelled with an h instead of the j but it's like an anglicization of the like of the spanish word yes yeah yeah so this is where we get into the story that some of you may know if you've listened to Joe Rogan ever in your life. (laughs) Uh, So there is some debate around the verisimilitude of some of these claims, but the general idea is that um, the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act was was for the economic benefit of William Randolph Hearst, the DuPont Corporation, DuPont, DuPont, thank you, Corporation, and Andrew Mellon, one of DuPont's investors. 
So DuPont and Mellon, all this is oil, gas, petrochemical company, right? Yep, still around today. Still around yep. today, really big. And then William Randolph Hearst controlled a journalism empire unheard of at the times and dwarfing any modern media conglomerate. Quote I found. Uh, and they started publishing in the 20s tons and tons and tons of like articles claiming that marijuana was a menace. So uh, certain quotes from, a, from Hearst papers are... Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse for horrid specters. This is your brain on drugs. Exactly. <laughs> so I was 23. In 28, a Hearst paper reported that marijuana was known as in India as the murder drug. It was common for a man to catch up a knife and run through the streets, hacking and killing everyone he encountered. Which is like, good lord, you got racism and misinformation in there. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of funny to me too that like now we're kind of on the flip side of this where there's like, well, marijuana will cure every disease yeah. you've ever had. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, we're kind of... Yeah, pull the pendulum, kinda, pendulum yeah. in the middle, guys. Pendulum in the yeah. middle. Um, but yeah, so we had these articles being pushed by a gigantic media conglomerate of the time. And you're it's the 20s and 30s, right? It's not like there's TVs in every household and there's a bunch or in, internet or any... It's not like there's a bunch of different ways to get your news. You can, like, read the paper and listen to stories your neighbors tell you. And then, so, with all of this, why was Hearst so against it? Well, some claim, because there's actually a lot of back and forth on the facts of these stories, uh, but some claim that Hearst had investment in paper and woodlots and in paper mills and did not want hemp taking over um, after, like, in 1916 and, and the hemp being made into paper process got, like, more and more efficient. Uh, that he was really against this. Mm -hmm. So he was fighting back. And then uh, Melon with DuPont was like displeased with Ford's hemp fuel as a competitor for petrochemical fuel. These ones are somewhat contested, so take them with a grain of salt. But they have been widely reported and kind of all, they, they do make sense. You know, if you run a paper with wood paper and someone comes along with a different paper and you don't have a stake in it. Well, you have this plant, right, that now serves like you know, whereas you have specialty crops for everything. It's like, we're growing certain types of trees to do paper. Then you're growing cotton to do cloth and fabric and rope mm -hmm. and all sorts of stuff. And all these things in between. And then even like DuPont later on, like with things like nylon and stuff like that. Yeah. Right now you have all your synthetic fa fabrics from petrochemicals. Right. Right. Versus then you have this plant that not only grows very quickly, but is very easy to grow in basically every condition. Yeah. You have refined the process to use it in all these different ways. And... Uh, and it, so basically you have this one crop that then all of a sudden fits like all of these needs and it's like super cheap to produce. Yeah. And it threatens the establishment of like, or these established companies or kind of like money makers and barons and things like that. So obviously, you know, there's a pretty um, robust reaction to that from some of these people. You see the same thing today with like solar power and wind. Yeah. Right. Is because they don't want you know, these big companies and stuff like that, they don't want to see their margins disappear. They don't want, uh, you know, when you are pulling oil out of the ground, well, if you own the well, you control how much oil comes out. You make money off every, you know, ounce of it that comes out. But, you know, you put a bunch of solar panels everywhere and you don't control the sun. You can't just like turn them off. So, yeah. <laughs> turn off that sun. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we have, we have Hearst and we have petrochemical companies doing shady stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in 1930, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics... I think it was, it was established then or just before then, and Harry Anslinger was uh, the director of it. And uh, he was super prejudiced against uh, marijuana and, you know, lots and lots of racialized communities and blamed them, blamed uh, black Americans and 
Hispanic Americans and Filipino Americans and entertainers in general, uh, with quotes like, their satanic music, jazz and swing, results from marijuana use. Uh, fast forward to today, <laughs> and uh, marijuana is still considered, so it's called, what's it, it's called a Schedule 1 drug in yes. the U.S., and basically it's a controlled substance with no accepted medical medicinal use, high abuse potential, concerns for dependence, and lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. So uh, uh, other drugs that are in like classified this way are things like um, heroin, heroin, other like a lot of like illegal opioids yeah. uh, and things like that. And then even like class two drugs, which are said to have like medical benefits, are things like cocaine and methamphetamine. So mm -hmm. those are even ranked lower than. <laughs> Something like marijuana, right? And it comes from this extremely long history. Yes. And uh, when you have something as a Schedule two drug, like cocaine and methamphetamines, you can study them mm -hmm. because they have, they can be prescribed in certain cases. They have, people believe them to have a medical benefit, so you can study them. But a Schedule one, you can't do studies on it. So there was this whole thing with cannabis where people would be like, oh, it has all of these claims. And then other people would be like, oh, those are only from anecdotal evidence. Like You can't use that as scientific evidence and they're like you won't let us do scientific evidence because you say it's a schedule one and they go well it has no benefits you go well it does and they just got into like in this constant loop of not being able to research and then other people saying well we need more research yeah and as well like uh like even like we said heroin is schedule one but like even opioids got a lot of research right because like yeah. morphine was heavily abused after world war one and two uh, yeah. but we've continued to study all the, the opioids and obviously like that has led to a different type of crisis in today's yeah. world. That some people think marijuana use could help to curb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, this also, we, you can't really talk about this without talking about the war on drugs. I mean, we mentioned the, like, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Um, and this has had a huge effect on, again, marginalized populations and minority populations like black Americans, especially black American men and young black American men. And uh, a quote here uh, is, John Ehrlichman, a senior advisor to Nixon, was later quoted as saying, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So just just to continue filling out the history and how these these opinions and these ideas from the 30s, they continued through and they still continue today and we're moving past them. And like by the 70s, some states started to decriminalize. And then in 1996, California made it legal to describe as a medical treatment. Some states are fully legal now. Some states have even gone so far as to decriminalize psilocybin, mm -hmm. which is like kind of the next step that people see from this. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in the drug commonly called magic mushrooms, which yes. is a psychedelic. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so things have moved and have progressed, but they started in a... Well, they started fine back potentially 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, yeah, we... Uh, we humans kind of muddled it up a little bit. Yeah. So we now live in a world where in many places, in many jurisdictions, all across the country of Canada, you can buy legal weed. There are literal like weed stores. Like uh, on every corner. They popped up like liquor stores. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there's some like issues with that as well. Yeah. Um, like in, not even in terms of like the availability of it, but more in so how these businesses are run and like yeah. the the way the industry was set up, but it's not really that important to this discussion. <laughs> but uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, marijuana itself, uh, the plant, the drug, 
uh, and why it's such a big deal, like why it affects us this way. Let's do it. So the main, there's kind of two main categories that people think of when they think about uh, cannabis. And this is actually, uh, I saw an article on this topic, which is why I was like, we should talk about cannabis. Uh, And so there's indica and sativa. Davis, what's an indica strain? Like, what's an example? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. no what, I think, what does, what's the effect of indica? Okay, I think before we the, go into the indica sativa, I think we should take a step back and say, like, we should talk about, like, the, the commonality, the active ingredient in okay. marijuana. all right. When people are talking about, like, marijuana uh, inebriation, the drug that we are talking about, the active ingredient. So, in the same way we were saying, like, so, like, if you think about, like, in a cigarette, the active ingredient, the part that makes you addicted and the part that get, gives you, like, the head rush is the nicotine. nicotine. Yeah. So in marijuana, the active ingredient or in cannabis, it's THC, which, and it's a very specific isomer of THC. It's delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol. It's a yeah. big mouthful. <laughs> when I mentioned industrial hemp has to have 0.3% THC, this is that stuff. Mm-hmm. So this is the stuff that has what's called like a psychoactive effect. Yes. So it affects your brain. It makes you different. Same way. So alcohol, the active ingredient is ethanol which is an (laughs) alcohol and basically your liver processes it and it causes certain um psychoactive effects it causes you to you know lose your inhibitions your vision will become blurred and your uh reactions will change reaction speeds will change things like that think about you have a cup of coffee yes active ingredient caffeine also affects you and your ability to function Mm -hmm. as most people are so dependent on it (laughs) yeah um yeah so This THC, it interacts with our endocannabinoid system. And the endocannabinoid system is a system in humans. It's something that is inbuilt in us. We produce certain uh, cannabinoids all on our own. And then THC is, what's it called? Exogenous, the out-of-body one that you take in. Mm. Endogenous, your body creates. Exogenous, you you consume. Um, And the endocannabinoid system, because some people were like, there's no reason for this, but other people were like, we have a system designed to process this sort of stuff. Uh, and there are studies suggest that this system plays a role in regulating stress recovery, protecting our nervous system, activating our immune system response, and regulating our homeostatic balance, which is our overall state of optimal health, function, and stability. And uh, we have naturally produced cannabinoids, like I said, and cannabinoid receptors, and they're found in nearly every region of our central nervous system and brain, as well as many other areas of the body, including, like I said, the immune system. And uh, its homeostatic role has been characterized as eat, sleep, relax, forget, and protect, mm-hmm. which I thought was a fun way yeah. to put it. <laughs> and, and a way to think about this too, right, is that like um, it kind of gets this name from the research that's been done on it and the research that's been done on cannabinoids. Yes. But like all drugs work this way in the body, like not on this particular system, but basically most drugs, the way that they work is that they fit into a specific protein in yes. the body and they cause a particular effect. So... Uh, just to use like a common example, right? With opioids, it's a all opioids have a similar chemical structure uh, at their core, and then they have different kind of like pieces kind of on them that change their potency, realistic, which is what it is. And so morphine is kind of like this core aspect. Uh, it's kind of like the core chemical, and it binds to certain receptors in the body, and then that causes certain effects to happen. So with opioids it it's a uh, you know pain relief and it basically is like slowing your body down which is why you can overdose from these things because it basically mm-hmm. shuts some of your body's homeostatic um effects 
like off. Oh. So it like makes it hard to breathe and things like that. Um, yeah, it's a topic for another day, but it's quite, it, there's, there's a lot of research into it. And it's, this is why some of these opioids are so dangerous because small doses of them basically create these massive effects in the body because they bind so well to these receptors. Same thing with alcohol. There's yes. a certain protein. The more alcohol you drink, the more those proteins are used up, the harder the time they have processing it. And the more of these effects that you start to feel in your body and things like that. And uh, this endocannabinoid system that we have that our, uh, all of our cannabinols and things are uh, connecting with, uh, the ECB system and endocannabinoids in general have a role in the pathology of many disorders while also serving a protective function in certain medical conditions. This is another quote uh, from the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Journal article. So it's been proposed that migraine, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, and related conditions represent clinical ECB endocannabinoid system, or endocannabinoid uh, deficiency syndromes. Deficiencies in ECB signaling could also be involved in the pathogenesis of depression. And in human studies, ECB system deficiencies have been implicated in schizophrenia, multiple sclerosis, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, anorexia, chronic motion sickness, and failure to thrive in infants. So this is a very important system in our bodies, connects to a lot of stuff, and our uh, cannabinoids in the marijuanas interact with this important system. Davis is giving me a very funny look. <laughs> well, before we start recording, she's like, I, I think I'm really going to stick to cannabis as the term I'm going to use. And then that threw that one out the window very quickly. because <laughs> we got into the history and it, you, it's so fun to talk in that 1920s announcer voice. <laughs> marijuana. Anyway, uh, so we have THC, which is the one that you've all heard about. And it interacts, It's like Davis was saying, the receptors, it's like a key in a lock, right? That That's the, the way that people describe it most often. So it replaces human cannabinoids for a period of time. And there's different uh, receptors in our cannabinoid system. And THC interacts with CB1 receptors. Mm -hmm. And so like why we can talk about like, you know, like THC and then the cannabinoids as kind of separate things. It's the same way like that, you know, morphine and heroin and fentanyl are all based off of this same sort of chemical structure and then slight variations on it. It's the same thing with the cannabinoids. So delta-9 THC is one specific isomer mm -hmm. of uh, tetrahydrocannabinol. And there's many others. So delta-9 refers to the specific carbon and on a change to the specific carbon in the chain. So in chemistry, you kind of count the carbons in a particular way because of the shape of the molecule. And, that, and then you can basically, it's just a uh, standardized rule set so that we can all communicate the same way and Yay. that everybody can look at the molecule and go, oh, this is what they mean. This is where they made a change or this is where it's different. Uh, and so, you know, our body produces things that have similar structures. Plants produce lots of things that have similar structures. Mm -hmm. And then even within the weed plant, there's many that per there are many similar type structures, but one that has been particularly associated with psychoactive effects. And uh, yeah, so it's got this psychoactive effect. Uh, it can affect your mind and body. It can help to relax and reduce stress. It has these intoxicating effects with that's like the psychoactive ones. Um, it's also some people use products with THC for a sleep aid or to improve appetite, anti-nausea and a pain reliever, which might be the one you've heard about if you've heard about medical cannabis and where it started was like with cancer patients yeah. who often deal mm -hmm. with a ton of nausea and a ton of pain. And this can like reduce the nausea and thereby improve appetite in that way and uh, be a pain reliever. And you also might know this if you've ever heard the old, the old idea that, oh, stoners eat a lot of snacks. They get the munchies, <laughs> as it were, because uh, it, it, it can increase your appetite and uh, suppress nausea. 
Mm-hmm. So it makes you eat a lot of chips. There's there's a great scene <laughs> in like a classic uh, stoner film, uh, Half Baked with Dave Chappelle, and they're like, one. it's like really, it's oh, it's good. It's a I don't know, it's been a while since I've seen it, so who knows if it holds up. Um, <laughs> but it's pretty funny, and there's a sequence at the very very beginning where they're like sending their friend out to get snacks, uh, and they start like listing off all these ridiculous snacks, <laughs> and then all at the end the guy's like, and water. Lots and lots of water. Uh, and then Dave Chappelle makes a very crude joke, but I won't say that on the podcast. Probably uh, <laughs> I just think of uh, Fast Times at Ridmont High. Oh, it's and, great. Uh, great movie. Spicoli. Yep. Uh, yeah. Sean Penn's character. Sean Penn. He's yeah. a super stoner and he orders a pizza to class. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> Back in the scene. 80s. That's a great scene. Um, yeah. A lot of great stoner comedies out there. It's like a whole genre. It is stoner, a whole genre. Stoner <laughs> comedy. It's Seth Rogen. Uh, how like <laughs> Seth, <laughs> Seth Rogen's um, road to fame is paved with joints of marijuana. <laughs> yeah, and a marijuana cigarette, as some would refer to it. As. <laughs> oh, those marijuana cigarettes, leading the, you, leading the you, youth astray. Are you doing the marijuana in there? Yes, mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and so in all of this, and the reason we giggle, and it's the stoner comedies, and all of this is because it also can release dopamine. That transitions super well mm-hmm. um, and results in feelings of relaxation. Yeah, and it has effect on a bunch of different regions of your brain, including the hippocampus, memory, your frontal cortex, thinking and decision-making, and the cerebellum, physical movement and coordination. That's why, like, classic stoners, like, tripping on things or, you know, being, being like, a <laughs> little that, bit more... Is, well, is that a classic stoner thing? I well, don't it's, know. I think it's more of the classic, like, intoxication thing of, like, yeah, you're less so. coordinated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Generally, generally when you're under the influence. That's why like every like prescription drug or even like over-the-counter drug has like do not operate heavy machinery. Yeah. Which like does apply to cars. I didn't yeah. I didn't know that for the longest time. Really? Oh, no. I would see those commercials <laughs> and all I would think would be like, oh, okay, of course, like I'm not going to operate my backhoe. Yeah. <laughs> like my excavator that I use on the weekends. I won't do it while I'm on aspirin. But I didn't really think about it. And then yeah, somebody was like, well, yeah, your car is like 3,000 yeah. pounds or whatever. Okay, so hurtling a metal death trap towards yes. other people in metal death traps. But anyway... Uh, and so THC, THC uh, you'll hear, like, the content. We talked about industrial hemp. It has 0.3, right? That would be the potency, the 0.3. But in, uh, in you know, marijuana that you're smoking, uh, with the THC content, you're you're going to have a lot higher content than 0.3. So uh, typically, you end up in around, like, it's kind of like the 10, 10 to 15-ish is a regular, like, lower dose lower mm-hmm. potency mm-hmm. and then over 17 is labeled as like high potency and over 20 is like strong this is strong weed that's the dank weed yeah that's dank weed making <laughs> dank memes and oh stuff. god <laughs> <laughs> oh dear um, but it's not only thc in cannabis is it davis no and this is kind of the interesting thing too this is the thing that has gotten you know i um that i think has really come about with legalization like the big change i think yeah. in the marijuana conversation because like before weed was legal like we knew about thc there's a lot of conversation about thc and it was like that was you know both vilified and touted with all these medical benefits yeah. but like i had never really heard of this the the cbd the cannabidiol cannabidiol um which is you now now that is the thing that's everywhere that's the miracle cure to every disease that you didn't even know you had it's the miracle Uh, one yeah um so cbd is like the most common uh cannabinoid in cannabis plants it's a lot of similar (laughs) syllables in medical chemistry um and yeah and so 
often what you'll see uh, associated with this particular cannabinoid is something, or like in a lot of the writings on medical marijuana and things like that, is this called the entourage effect. And yes. it's effect alongside THC. Uh, and you'll see a lot now the CBD stuff is really being touted as like, well, CBD is not psychoactive yeah. in the same way that THC is, but it still has an effect on our endocannabinoid system. It just doesn't affect our brains in the same way or in our, in our cognition, I think is a really good way to put it. And part of that is because it's instead of like THC binds to receptors and takes the place of a natural cannabinoid or like a, a human created cannabinoid, mm -hmm. CBD inhibits the production of an enzyme in our body that regulates and destroys our own excess cannabinoids. So this leads us to having more of our own endocannabinoids circulating in our bodies, which affects our physical state. So instead of taking the place, it just, it has an effect that encourages our own body to like produce and not break down our own endocannabinoids, meaning there's more to run around and help maintain homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's uh, recent studies, because now we can study it, uh, have also suggested that CBD may alter the effects of other natural chemicals in our bodies, including serotonin, which modulates mood and stress, adenosine, which impacts our sleep-wake cycle, and vanilloid, which contributes to pain modulation. Mm -hmm. And this leads in CBD is used primarily for anti-inflammatory, anti-anxiety, and pain relief uh, effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the anti-anxiety one is one I feel like you see come up a lot in the conversation today about CBD. Because there's always yeah. been this association with, like, marijuana and making you paranoid or anxious. Yeah. And then now they kind of say, like, oh, well, like, CBD is, like, that's what helps people with anxiety and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and the anti-inflammatory is huge. Because yeah. inflammation is actually, it causes a lot of problems in our bodies. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a stress. And if you have... If you have stuff like irritable bowel syndrome, it's typically you're like constantly inflamed, right? They're, your system is always under stress. And if you can take something like CBD and it helps to regulate your body to reduce that inflammation, then it reduces the stress and your body can function more mm -hmm. uh, more happily is what my brain said. And I didn't get to another word. So that's what you get. <laughs> and this comes a lot to like, um, like stress is a really important uh, system. It's a, an important oh, yeah. feedback system in our bodies. Uh, and we need stress. Like, you know, we talk about like the flight or flight um, response and that stress, right? Your body reacts to the situation, a stressful situation in different ways. And then it tells you what to do essentially. And by, and then it starts to, you know, protect you. It'll shut certain things down. It'll allow you to reach for greater strength or speed in whatever situation you might find yourself in. The problem is, is that the society that we typically live in today is very, 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 very high stress with no, uh, no or no or low stress periods yeah. so people enter into this state of constant stress which causes our bodies to become basically inflamed all the time yeah. <laughs> and it leads to like all these adverse health health outcomes absolutely mm -hmm. yeah our bodies are the fight or flight response it's a it's an acute response yes. right it's very yeah. pointed at a moment in time and it, it happens it's dramatic and then it's over whereas now we are in states of chronic stress yeah. and chronic stress is very bad so when you're worried at, you know, 8 p.m. at night about that work project that you still have to get done tomorrow, that's chronic stress because it's not, you're not able to, you, it's not like, oh no, a lion jumped out at me and now I'm running and I've escaped the lion or the lion has lost interest and now I'm safe and I can go to sleep underneath this tree. Um, it's that, it's that constant, okay, well then I need to do this and how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get my groceries? My car needs to be fixed. You know, all those little things contribute to this chronic stress. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, but CBD, like we're saying, can help to alleviate some of this and to balance us back out. And you mentioned the entourage effect. 
No, I hadn't. I was oh. getting to that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say CBD uh, interacts with THC, and one thing that they're that since it has been legalized and there can be a lot more research on it, especially in Canada and in other parts of the world, they've realized that CBD can reduce the psychoactive effect of THC. And now that cannabis can be produced medically and you can really, you can control the breeding and all of this a lot more, you can produce what are balanced strains. So instead of just having like 20% THC and like, we don't really know about the CBD or we don't really talk about it, you can have balanced strains. So you can have like it has the same amount of like CBD to THC and it can really balance out the high and reduce that like paranoia effect. Mm. But Davis, what is the entourage effect? Well, so the entourage effect is interesting. The research into it now, like if you Google the entourage effect, <laughs> all you get is marijuana resources. <laughs> and it like, it, it's something that it basically like leads you to believe that it only applies to marijuana. And I, I, I do seem to recall like in some medical chemistry courses I took, it was a plot. Like I remember seeing this, the entourage effect, but I, you know, then I couldn't find any research to back me up because it's buried under mountains and mountains of marijuana research. Um, but the entourage effect is basically just like how some drugs affect other drugs. So there's a few really prominent examples of this. Uh, one of the good ones is, have you, have you ever heard um, that you shouldn't eat grapefruit if you're on certain types of heart medication? Not at all. Oh, that's interesting. So this is a really, this is a common one that sometimes comes up and like this is often in pharmacological studies. This is really important because this is, these are things that are sometimes really important for pharmacists to know because yeah. the doctor or multiple doctors might prescribe you all this stuff but then a pharmacist where their expertise really comes in is that they ha- they gain an understanding and knowledge of how things in the body interact together okay. so some drugs taken together become extremely dangerous like th- completely benign on their own well and benign outside of whatever like um intended effect they have but together they can become really deadly. So sometimes they'll say like, don't eat grapefruit if you're on certain types of heart medication. Of course, I cannot remember the specific grouping of heart medications um, because grapefruit has a protein in it that will bind to the same, or has an enzyme in it that will bind to the same proteins that'll, ah. uh, in your body. And that will prevent you from uptaking your medicine. And it can like lead to you having like a heart attack basically uh, if you're reliant on these medications, right? Uh, another common example that's like less pharmacological, a little bit pharmacological, but, um, is you often hear, hear the saying, right? Like omega threes, fish or fish is good thing to eat. Cause it's hot, rich in omega threes. Yes. Those, those gold omega threes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the pills you see sometimes <laughs> the big horse pills and they're, yeah, they they have like oil in them. So omega threes are really important because our body, um, our diets actually have a lot of what's called omega six, which is a similar protein, um, but it's a different isomer. It's like a different, um, in the same way, like THC and CBD is like, like slightly different, but similar. And we, our regular diet typically has a lot of omega-6 in it. And so omega, eating foods that are rich in omega-3s like salmon, say, are really good for balancing out that ratio. And that ratio has effects on how like um, cholesterol is processed in the body. So having a more even ratio means that you're going to have better low density cholesterol to high density cholesterol. And that like, and that's healthier for you, all these Mm -hmm. things, even sort of, this is a bit of an aside, but like there's a big health kick a while back, right? That you should only eat the egg white in an egg because of the cholesterol. And it, it is, it's wrong because there's the two types of cholesterol are in the white and then the yolk. They're kind of separated in the egg. And if you eat both the yolk and the egg, those cholesterols are balancing each other out. So from a cholesterol standpoint, it's way healthier to eat the whole egg than to eat just the egg white. From a calorie standpoint, sure, the egg white has way less calories, but then you're- Tastes way less good. 
And and this is one of these things, just because we're on it. It's our PSA for the week. Big thing about food science too is that like there, it, it's it's interesting because now there's probably less of an, an um less of a importance placed on it, but it, like for a long time it was like counting calories, yeah, right. But like food and Proper nutrition is so far is so much more than just like how many calories you eat a day. So you'll hear like bodybuilders talk about like their macros and stuff, and like oh I can I need to eat under fifteen hundred calories a day so that I lose weight. And it's like caloric balance is important when you're trying, especially when you're specifically trying to lose weight. But it's still important. Like you could eat a thousand calories a day, but if you're eating a thousand calories of junk and not getting any nutrients, that's just as bad as if you're eating ten thousand calories a day, but it's full of it's like okay, maybe all, not just as bad. Ten thousand is a lot. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> 3,000 calories of fruits and veg. Yeah, exactly. Which is so much to be eating all day. Like yeah. <laughs> we should do a whole episode on that. Yeah, we should, actually. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good idea. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, another one that I've thought of for this this sort of effect is activated charcoal became a huge thing in baking. Mm-hmm. And in, like... It's really bad for you. Yeah. So, so if you've ever been at, like, a fancy cafe or, like, a bakery or something, and you see a dessert that's, like, pure black... And it, uh, it, they used to, it's, and other people do mm, like squid ink and stuff say, to, to yeah. diet. But then, like, you know, your vegans can't eat squid ink and your vegetarians can't eat squid ink, depending on how strict they are and stuff. And other people just don't want to. So they found activated charcoal makes foods completely black, pure black, without being an animal product. And it adds, it doesn't change the flavor at all. So yeah, I was going to say, squid ink has a really strong flavor, yeah. <laughs> which is why it's not commonly used in, like, desserts and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> like, mmm, squid. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they started using activated charcoal, but then they eventually realized this was a huge problem because it would negate the effects of a lot of medicine. Yeah. Well, if you ever get alcohol poisoning, basically what they pump into your bloodstream is uh, activated charcoal. So it'll absorb <laughs> the alcohol that's left in your bloodstream that your body can't process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so don't eat them if, you yeah. have, if you're on other medications. Uh, don't eat activated charcoal goods. Uh, but yeah. But yeah, so entourage effect. Things affect other things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's sort of like the two, like the main medical ingredients, I guess we could say. Like the <laughs> medical components of marijuana, the active ingredients that we typically active talk about yeah. are THC and CBD. Yes. But we often classify marijuana uh. into these two groups, indica and sativa. And you had asked me what an indica was. Yes. Or <laughs> I had asked me what an example of an indica. I was not asking for an example. I was not asking for a name. Uh. <laughs> you don't have to name names here, Davis. No, but yeah. Like, <laughs> so an indica is typically associated with um, very like lethargic effects. So the stereotype of the stoner who like sinks into the couch and like yeah. can't get up. There's actually a PSA that's like that where the guy like melts into a <laughs> there couch. There is. Yeah. Um, those are sometimes what like are common. That that uh, effect is what is commonly associated with indicas. Yes. Uh, there's a term for it. Of, I, I saw, I can't remember the name of the, of the TV show, but it was on Netflix and it was a Kathy Bates show. And she ran a... Kathy Bates. Oh, I yeah. know what you're talking and she about ran, now. She ran a dispensary in California. Sorry, I 100%... It, I didn't think of Kathy Bates. Like, I know who Kathy Bates is. Yeah. But for whatever reason, when you said Kathy Bates, my mind jumped to Kathy Griffin. No, that's very, very <laughs> and that's different. That's why I was so affronted. I was like, why were you watching something with Kathy Griffin? No. Kathy Bates is a gem. Uh, yes, she is. Yeah, and so she yeah. has this show. And I forget what it's called. I will get it for you next time. Because um, it has some really good moments in it. And one of them, she's describing to someone who has never smoked before, I think, like what the difference is. And she says, indica, indica couch. So like, if mm-hmm. you need that. I'm we'll, trying to remember the name of the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, yeah. And then sativa, the other one, the other main category. This is an energizing 
one they typically say and with like sweet aromas. So they they'll say like if you want a if you want a weed to relax, get an indica. If you want a weed to like do stuff like do your cleaning and all of that, get a sativa. Did you look it up? I did look it up. What it's, is it? It's disjointed. Right. Yeah. Joint like weed. Ah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very, very silly show, but it has some beautiful moments, including um, a, a veteran, I think an Iraq veteran, who's dealing with PTSD and is struggling. And they there's some really, really well done sequences when he decides to try marijuana and the, the way that it helps him kind of break through some barriers he's put up. It's some beautiful scenes, but it's also a stoner comedy. So... <laughs> Take it as you will. But so indica, indicouch, sativa, energizing. Um, and people put a lot of stock in these labels, but the article I found that led into me being like, let's talk about this, was uh, there were Dalhousie researchers who worked with a Dutch medical cannabis company, uh, Bedroken International, and they studied hundreds of cannabis strains with indica and sativa labels, measuring cannabinoids, THC, and CBD, other things called terpenes that will jump back to in a sec, and their genetic profiles to examine the chemical and genetic differences and found that indica and sativa labels were largely meaningless. <laughs> uh, partially because uh, cannabis was made illegal. So you couldn't study it. You couldn't get like, it's not like with alcohol where you can be like, champagne is only from this region and made this way and all of that stuff. You couldn't do that. <laughs> so you had... <laughs> well, and that's where, and it's sort of funny because that is sort of where some of the Indica Sativa conversation yeah. like, comes from traditionally <laughs> has yeah. to do with like how they were cultivated and like yeah. which strains they were cultivated from. Yeah, mm. and that's the idea. But because there was no tracking, it just, it got all muddy and crossed and people were crossbreeding everything. So then like they're dogs. Like, yep. <laughs> Sort of. I mean, there's a whole international body for dog oh, I know. breeds. Um, Which is insane to It's me. a whole topic on its own. Uh, I have a third I was going to say, I was going to say, see, I would have made that promo for you if you'd given it like one more second. <laughs> I get excited. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you have your, uh, you have your indicas and your sativas, kind of, sort of. And this, uh, the differentiation typically has to do a lot with aroma. Because you couldn't genetically test these different strains because you're like growing in your backyard for your neighborhood folks. Um, so you couldn't, or there's a lot of other sides of growing cannabis. It's not just like, oh, I grew a couple plants, but we're not getting into that today. Uh, but yeah, so they were starting to be differentiated partially by aroma. And indicas and sativas tend to have different aromas. So the idea behind an indica is it has an earthy aroma, oh, a grounding aroma, whereas sativas have sweet aromas. And these aromas come from terpenes. So terpenes are something that is produced by plants. All plants. Lots and lots of plants. Lots of plants produce terpenes. Over a hundred different fragrant oils that give many plants their distinct smells and tastes, including mm -hmm. cannabis, which has terpenes that are unique to cannabis, but all plants, have, most mm -hmm. plants have terpenes. Yeah. Terpenes, from a chemical perspective, they're very interesting. It's this class of chemicals, and they all have this unit. This so All terpenes have increments of five carbons, oh. C5. And it's a particular shape. I mean, you can't see it. You're listening to us. It's a pentagon? Um, no, it's not a pentagon. All right, fine. No, it's not a circle. It's not a circular oh, molecule. Oh, okay. So um, I was thinking, like, other aromatics. 
terpene, yeah, the terpenes can form aromatics because of the shape, but the actual oh. terpene shape is not an aromatic. Sorry, I should just let yeah. you talk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so all terpenes are going to be in increments of five. So sometimes we'll say like C5, C10, C30 terpenes. And oh. it's this repetition of this similar chemical structure over and over and over again. And it produces like all, you can produce all these different terpenes. So a lot of terpenes are actually a plant's defense mechanism. Oh. Yeah. So some plants will produce certain terpenes that taste really bad to animals or insects and that will protect them from being eaten yeah. the animal or insect bites and, mm -hmm. goes, Blah! and some of them are used as well as like cell signaling between plants or among the plant itself to say like mm -hmm. so it's like ah i've been injured put out these terpenes and then all my friends know like ah there's something gonna injure us yeah. like when you cut grass i don't think it's a terpene release when you cut grass but when you cut grass people associate <laughs> like the fresh grass yeah, cut yeah smell. we're like oh smells so good I don't know that I've but, ever noticed it, but it's, oh, yeah. I love the smell yeah. of freshly cut grass. It's actually all the blades of grass, like, screaming out to their, <laughs> their <neighbors>. neighboring <laughs> plant, their neighboring leaves to say, like, something is coming and cutting all of us. Because it allows those plants to start certain, like, cellular shutdown processes to protect themselves. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. screams of grass. <laughs> Tell that to your dad when he's mowing the lawn on Saturday. Smells delicious. <laughs> I have a lot of problems with grass as a, as a horticultural crop. But the smell of cut grass is very nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> An argument for another day. <laughs> yeah, we won't get into that. Uh, so there's a lot of terpenes um, that have been like theorized to have different uses. And if you go to a place that like prescribes medical cannabis, like there's uh, a place called Harvest Medicine is one of these places. And they they give like lists of the different terpenes and what like what effect you're looking for with your cannabis and which terpenes you should be looking to have as like a majority component <clears throat> and all of that because they say that they have all of these different uh functions but a lot of the functions of these terpenes has not been proven in human studies it's been like hinted at in some studies lots of anecdotal evidence but we definitely need more evidence before we can say that any of these things are facts for sure mm -hmm. i think the kind of because like, this is where we start to get into the really like some of the 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 um mumbo jumbo like medical like this this weed will cure all of your diseases um and i think it really does come from the fact like we have a scientific understanding from studying plants that like terpenes have these effects on other insects animals and other plants mm -hmm. so like we know that terpenes <clears throat> affect other living creatures in all these different ways and then we know that cannabis and we know that different strains of cannabis people report having different experiences with them, yeah. right? And now you've got this wealth of anecdotal but not really like peer-reviewed level evidence that sort of suggests this. So then it creates this line of questioning, but we're so early into basically the descheduling or the decriminalization of marijuana and the acceptance of like large-scale marijuana research yeah. that we don't have like the longitudinal health studies mm -hmm. to really say like, ah, oh, yes, of course, if this is high in li linol or linolol or whatever, how, limonene and all those other ones. Yeah. yeah it'll it'll give you these effects right so i think that that's kind of like where this line of thinking comes from yeah and because like studying like the terpenes is really cool like when you extract and stuff because you can get little cool pie charts and oh, things like that. Yeah. cool pie charts yeah i don't know so cool chemists are really into that kind of stuff so <laughs> people love visualizations yeah um and there are there are some websites out there i can't remember the name of them right now i don't think it's leafly there's another one that it actually like you can go on and it has the different cannabis products from a bunch of different companies mm -hmm. and you can look at people's reviews and people can like rate them and say like it did this and this and this so it's all anecdotal evidence but at least if you are looking to like try a different wheat like a different cannabis strain and you are like okay i want it 
like I want to get some cannabis so I can relax, but like do all my house cleaning. Then you look for people who have like tagged this as like a cleaning weed because no, that's one of the tags that people can give because it's because it's anecdotal and they kind of leaned into it. Mm -hmm. But that's different. Like, and then there's other strains where people are like, this is good for like watching a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you won't do anything, but you can like hang out for a while. And there's a lot of precedence for I'll this find too. That for next time. A lot of precedence for this in medical research as well, because, um, and what's started to happen now, like in pharmacology is that, you know, they kind of, um, they've kind of not run out of like synthetic roots, but like they kind of coming up with a drug from scratch is incredibly difficult, right? Yeah. You have to have a huge understanding of like biopathways in the body and things like that. And it's they're not, so complicated. And they're so complicated, <laughs> right? They're not very easy. But um, what a lot of pharmacological companies have started to do now is transition away um, from a, in a profit motivated sense, they've transitioned away from uh, sort of more of the Western traditional ideas around pharmacology and medicine and are looking back now at a lot of like the traditional ways of knowing and um, like folk medicines or traditional medicines uh, and look to those to find potential pharmacological, pharmacologically active ingredients. So like I mean, you mentioned aspirin earlier. Yeah. And aspirin comes from willow bark. Exactly. And which is like, which is a common, um, which is a common medication that like traditional peoples use and things like that. Or like um, in my family, my like grandfather, he used to make what we would call it black soup. And it was a Chinese tea concoction that like was for like, you know, so if any of us ever, com- the joke, the running joke in the family was always like, don't tell Gung that you're like, that you're, you think you have a cold coming on because he will make this stuff. And it was basically like, he would go to the Chinese markets and he would buy like all of these, like if you've ever been to like a Chinatown and like you walk past one of those stores and it's like super pungent and they have like all these weird, like dried things out and stuff like that. Like a lot of those are medicines. They're the traditional medicines. And so he would, he had his little concoction that he would go and you grab all the ingredients for, and then he would boil it down for like hours and hours and hours and like add more water um and it would taste like eating a tree uh but it's actually it, a storyline about this in disjointed yeah and it would but it would and it would like knock you out too like a couple hours later you'd be like asleep um maybe that's the that's the key of it well and exa- well exactly right and so like there's all this anecdotal or traditional evidence to sort of say like you know oh well, these are medicines but then what they'll do is they'll take those medicines and then they'll run them through like really advanced like spectroscopy mm-hmm. and uh, chromatography and they'll separate all the ingredients out then they'll do all of these act- bioactivity assays on the ingredients that are in them and like again with a guide you know you're guiding your research based on like well what do people say that this was good for like what do the like chinese traditional medicine yeah. like people practitioners say that they would use this for or give this to people for and then they find active ingredients and then they can and then they can either synthesize those like in the lab and then make drugs from them yeah very cool uh yeah so one of these terpenes that gets a lot of attention is myrcene m-y-r-c-e-n-e and it's got the same sort of thing like it's people uh it's one of the most common ones found in cannabis, but it's also found in mango, hops, thyme, lemongrass, and cloves. Mm-hmm. So it's in a bunch of different stuff. And it gets its name from the Brazilian shrub. Oh, I didn't practice this. Mercia sferocarpa, which was used as an ancient herbal remedy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a common food additive. It's used in air fresheners. It's got an earthy, fruity, musky scent to it. Uh, and so there's some idea that it has a relaxation effect, but again, not enough rigorous human trial. And uh, you can get into like talking about essential oils with all of this stuff too, right? Like people might be like, there's, there's people touting that essential oils do way too much and you should ingest them, which you shouldn't. Um, but then there's other ones where it's like, 
you, it's a whole different topic in itself too. Um, but then there's other ones where it's like, oh, well, the scent of lavender is soothing to people. Mm. So maybe using lavender as medicine in conjunction with other medicine, you know, for the entourage effect to help relax you because it has these relaxation effects, but we haven't looked into it in, in just the scent side of it to study it. Yeah. Right? Or like all those psychos that put oregano oil under their tongues to not get to cure their colds. I don't think they're psychos. I've done it myself, of course. It's I, I do it's, it. It's more exciting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I work in the public yeah. during a pandemic. I was like, I'll take some folk medicine, please. Yeah, I, that's why I make fun of it. But like, also because I've done it and I, I can't do it. I think it tastes terrible. It's pretty brutal. I taste it in my mouth all day. It burns my tongue. It's very unpleasant. Uh, so, but people are always like that. They're like, I'm like, oh, I got a little bit of a cold. They're like, well, do you want some oregano oil? Like, no, I don't want your... <laughs> poison fire water <laughs> under my tongue thank you uh, yeah but it's the same thing like the whole like cold effects thing is a yeah. whole placebo anyway as well oh, right it's a yeah. space it's all the same principle. <laughs> um, but yeah so we've talked about all these things that are in cannabis and uh like thc cbd looking for those like balanced strains right but how do i get the cannabis in my body sarah well there's a few <laughs> different ways you can do it uh as everyone knows you can smoke it or vaporize it now, as vaporization of inhalable substances has really increased in the last few years. And, and just to kind of like explain the difference between like combusting and, yes. and vaporization, right? So combusting is where you smoke it. You it's know, like you your it, regular joint. Yeah, your marijuana cigarette. Or your marijuana regular cigarette. Or your regular cigarette. <laughs> Not um, marijuana or marijuana. And you're combusting it. And obviously, like we have a pretty good understanding of like generally combusting things is really bad for you. Tobacco is bad because of all the other stuff they put in it as well. But in particular, combustion is really bad because it creates a lot of free radicals, which oh, are those. Yeah, which we've talked about in the past, but just as a, to reiterate, like it's a molecule where there's a like a lone electron electron a very unhappy electron usually they're in pairs even in like orbitals that aren't full but if you have a radical which is like one free electron radical it, man it's very likely to pull electrons off of other things and like disrupt like proteins and things like that in the body so um and so for example like oxygen itself is a free radical uh because of the way that it bonds and the way the electronics are distributed but it's also that's also what gives oxygen its ability to be used for like cellular respiration because it's there, there's there's energy in it that's kind of easy to access and drive other chemical processes but if you've heard of antioxidants yeah. it's to get that free radical oxygen it under control because we don't want it because it's bad for our bodies yes yeah basically there are like substances that are ready to give up an electron sacrifice themselves yeah. to the radical and turn it into a non-radical like blueberries mm -hmm. i don't research that this is what i've heard yes that is a lot yeah they always say like blueberries are yeah. a big antioxidant <laughs> um but yeah, so, but when you vaporize something is rather than burning it and combusting it, you are heating it up to the point that certain ingredients in it will reach their vapor point. So water, a great example, water. vapor point of 100 degrees Celsius. So if you were to take a drop of water at room temperature and suddenly be able to instantly expose it to 100 degrees Celsius, it would turn into vapor instantly. It's like ah. when you have a really hot stove and you flick water on it, it oh. goes, yeah. that's vaporization. Um, so what you were trying to do with like marijuana or cannabis when you are trying to vaporize it is rather than burning it with fire, which is a much higher heat than the vaporization. So you'll use like electrical coils with greater control is that you are trying to heat it to a point that the THC and the CBD and the terpenes vaporize into vapors rather than smoke. Right. Yeah. And vaporization is not harmless. No. It, it started getting touted as like absolutely harmless 
it's a lot less harmful than combustion, yeah. but it's not harmless. And especially that conversation really came about too with like vaporization of tobacco, like yes. the growth of like, um, yeah. like, uh, jewel. Jewel. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to say it, but, <laughs> <laughs> no. but yeah, no, exactly. Like there's a really good documentary on Netflix called broken. It's a four part series. And one of them is about the nicotine epidemic in youth because mm-hmm. of vaporization and well, stuff the- and vape. Yeah. And Juul in large part is a big part of that. Yeah. Anyway. Well, they even say, right, like, because originally that's how those vaporizers were really marketed was as a way to help with your smoking cessation. That's how, that's why they were created. Yeah, exactly. Because someone. The original ones were, what was that company that would do the gum? Nicorette? Nicorette. Yeah. Like the original ones were like Nicorette. They were invented by a Chinese man. Mm -hmm. I think he, he watched his father and family members go through like getting cancer and there was a lot of smoking in lower... Uh, income populations in China. And he was like, I want to make a thing that helps people stop doing this or like allows them to taper off. But the reason that like gum and stuff doesn't catch on with a lot of people or the patch is because you don't have the habit anymore, the like physical habit. And that's huge for people. And it's a social thing. So the vape vape pens and vaporizers allow people to continue Mm -hmm. doing that. But yeah, they're saying now that like uh, vape pens are actually worse, like one or like, you know, vaporizers like jewels and things like that are worse for smoking cessation than certain tobacco products like cigars or oh. pipe smoking because to they're us, too pleasant um the, well the, they're too the easy yeah, the vape, yeah. it's too easy you're constantly dosing yourself which is the same as someone who would smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and, and they can have really smoking. high nicotine content especially mm-hmm. when they first came out there wasn't a lot of regulation mm-hmm. and it's the nicotine that you get addicted to yeah and like whereas like if you smoke one a cigar you don't inhale a cigar it'll make you really sick yeah. um <laughs> And it's so much at once. Exactly. A, a, a real cigar, like a good sized cigar will take two hours to smoke. Um, so you're not going to, it's, you're not going to be sitting there. Ha- well, some people will, but like having cigar after cigar after cigar, it's usually like a treat for people. And same thing with a pipe. A pipe will take at least 45 minutes to smoke down. So typic- So they say that those things are actually better for smoking cessation because they will give you the nicotine high. They fulfill that habit, but they're not so easily accessible that you can do them all the time. Yeah, you can't just, like, take a little hit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, but both ways you can consume your cannabis products. Uh, if you do use smoking or vaporization, uh, you will feel effects within seconds to minutes. Yeah, there's been studies on people where they've had them, like, smoke weed, and then they'll take their blood, or they'll have the blood yeah. going through, like, a dialysis machine at the same time, and they will say, like, from the first inhalation, like, right away, yeah. you will pick up <laughs> THC in the bloodstream. Yes. Uh, and the effects, they say it can last up to or beyond six hours. If you go to anecdotal evidence, you talk to people who are maybe more experienced cannabis smokers, they can say, if I don't smoke a lot, it'll be gone in an hour. Other people, it's like, typically, it doesn't matter how much I smoke, I'll still feel some effect in like three or four hours. Other people, it lasts longer. Um, if you're just starting out, the, the key with any drug really is to start low and go slow. This is my PSA for the episode. Um, <laughs> and then we'll get back into how so you can kids, consume it. So kids, as you want to go and smoke your weed. Or adults. I've had adults ask me about this That's too. true. That's a good point um, actually. Because That's it was illegal point. when we were growing up yep. and all of our parents were raised in the war on drugs. So there's very, very negative opinions about it. But now the kids are, the kids, the millennials are like, but it doesn't seem so bad. They made it legal. Um, so if you do want to start Start low and go slow. So this means a small amount and a low THC product. Remember we talked about THC potency, low. So I'd say under 15% is where you want to start. And it should contain CBD. Because again, CBD helps to balance out the effects. So you might not feel super baked the first time you use it, but that's a good thing. Start low, go slow until you get used to it. It's like you wouldn't, hopefully, 
if someone was just starting drinking and they wanted to like test it out, they usually start with like a glass of wine or like a beer. They yeah, that's start how with, it like, goes. <laughs> but like that's how, that's how a lot of people are kind of introduced to it. Like that's why a lot of parents things, right? will introduce yeah. it and just first, yeah. just so you can like have a taste. It's not like here, drink this forty, right? Like yeah, it's oh, different. Yeah, yeah. So like, don't try to get super baked mm. the first time you do it. There used um, to be and this don't combine old... with other substances. Yes, yeah. There used to be this like um, I don't know if you call it like an old wives' tale or like urban legend or whatever, but there used to be like this discourse that the first time you ever smoked marijuana, it wouldn't get you high. I heard that because your body didn't really know, like your system yeah. didn't know what to do with it. I think there's some dubiousness to that, but like I can understand like not recognizing the sensation you're experiencing. Yeah, and I've heard anecdotal evidence for that one too. Like mm-hmm. people being like, "Yeah, the first time I didn't really," but it's also. Maybe you were more cautious too. And you, and you also, like you said, you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. You don't know. And you don't know what it should feel like. Yeah. And if you've never smoked and you have very little information on, you might be like, yeah, I didn't see trails after my hands and like. Mr. Krabs. (laughs) What? Well, like, that's like a SpongeBob episode where it's like, can you feel it, Mr. Krabs? And he keeps saying that over and over again. It's because like there's some like music coming or something. But yeah, I've seen that (laughs) used as memes about like taking drugs. Uh, You feel it? (laughs) Can Uh, you feel it, Mr. Krabs? And if you you are starting out, smoking or vaporizing is probably the way to go to start out because you do feel it more quickly. So you can better monitor what you're feeling and that you're feeling something at all. And then if you're not, wait like 15, 20 minutes and then maybe... Try a little more if you if you're still interested in that experience. Also, set and setting are huge. This is a huge thing for drugs. People talked a lot with psychedelics, but set and setting. So set is where you are, or no, set is your mindset. So where you are at in your mind, very important for psychedelics, but for any drug really, it's like if you you have a beer because you want to have like a good time with friends, versus like you have a beer because you're feeling sad and you know it will make you feel more sad, right? So that's your mindset right? And then setting is where you are. You should feel safe, especially if you're trying something new for the first time. You want to do it in a place you feel very safe. It's very important. Set and setting, start low, go slow. Um, And that's why it's, I think, important to try smoking or vaporizing first because you feel the effects immediately and it tends to pass through your system faster compared to something like ingestion. Because we've, maybe we all haven't heard, but no, like you hear about pot brownies. Oh yeah. And there's this this what do you call it, like an adage or like an idea that if you make a batch of pot brownies there'll be there'll be some where people you could eat it and you'd like barely have any effect of it because it's a human mixing a bowl of stuff right so the your product's not going to get super spread out so you might have one where you feel nothing and then there'll be a brownie that people call the death brownie and it will be like twice as potent as the others in the batch because it just just through inconsistent mixing it happened to get a lot more and a lot of this too is that like how weed has to be incorporated into foods like that in order for it to be active in the body is that you have to first like dissolve the thc and the cbd into like the oils or the butters the lipids that you're using because thc is lipid so like you couldn't take like like a bud like uh, (laughs) and eat it it wouldn't get you high although i've even heard things of people where they say like well you can actually take the bud you can grind it up and you can put it on like peanut butter and then eat it because peanut butter is very high in fat and will help your body like process it but so you have to have it incorporated with some sort of fat in order for it to be absorbed into the body yeah um and so this this whole idea of like the death brownie and everything has been reduced a lot in the medicalization of it because you can go to a dispensary and you can get chocolates or gummies or something and when they're selling it through that way they've ensured that every single one has the same amount of product in it mm -hmm. 
But the reason you should not try an edible as your first experience, which I've heard some people want to do because they're like, I don't like smoking. I don't like the act of smoking. I don't want to inhale anything. But ingesting it takes 30 minutes to an hour and a half to kick in. So you could easily end up overdoing it, thinking that you're not feeling anything when your body just hasn't processed it yet. And it can last longer. The Canadian government site said up to and or beyond 12 hours. What I've heard is typically like you're closer to like the five, six hours, um, but definitely longer feeling, longer lasting than smoking. Mm-hmm. That's why also it took, um, so weed became legal in 2018, but it took another full right. year before edibles were also legalized. Well, the sale of edibles was legalized. So after weed was legal, if you were making your own pop brownies, no one would care. Yeah. <laughs> but you couldn't sell them in the dispensaries or the companies couldn't produce them yet because they needed the extra time to figure out like how they were going to properly monitor the strengths of these um, products as they entered the market. And keep them consistent across a batch, right? Like you don't want to buy a bag of gummies and be like, one of these is awful. And it's going to give me a really bad time. And two of them are going to do nothing. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) like industrial, like processes of making stuff like this generally gets rid of a lot of that. Like a lot more homogenization. And plus you're also not, you know, it used to be you would like, you would literally like cook your weed down in butter then you would strain the (laughs) butter out and then you would use that butter to make stuff and you would have to make sure that it was properly incorporated. Now it's like they basically, again, they use like chromatography. They extract just the ingredients that they're looking for and then you create like um concentrates that are that you can test and have known concentrations and then you add them in very specific ingredients so they incorporate easier into these products yeah yeah so yeah you can smoke it you can vaporize it you can eat it there's also under the tongue the sublingual um this says it takes five to 30 minutes it can last same with edibles up to beyond 12 hours Um, and then you can just tell people that you're taking oregano oil or oil of oregano. I guess this, that's the way to say it. <laughs> yes. Um, but if you do use it, Davis, and someone wants to find out if you used it, how can they find out? Well, they can take your blood. Ugh, um, like vampires. Yeah, yeah, like vampires. <laughs> yeah, this is something that's really interesting even now with legalization. And like one of the things that people would often use um, against like why it should be legal or like an issue with its legalization was that like you there's no easy way to there's no like roadside test there's no breathalyzer exactly uh the story of the breathalyzer is really interesting as well because like we didn't have the breathalyzer forever the breathalyzer i mean we've been drinking alcohol for thousands of years yeah but the breathalyzer (laughs) was only invented in the 70s and prior to that the only way to get someone's blood alcohol content was to take blood and typically the way that drunk driving was um assessed or if someone was inebriated while they were driving was through like a roadside test where you would, you know... Put they, your finger on your nose. Mm-hmm. Walk on this line. Walk on this line. Say the alphabet backwards. Usually they don't say the alphabet backwards. Usually what it is is do the alphabet between two letters. Oh. And because you can tell if someone's inhibited or uninhibited because they'll blow right past the stop letter or they'll start right at the beginning of the alphabet. Oh. It'll mess up because it's a, like that extra cognitive test. Okay. But that, I it's one of these things that like... the backwards one because I was like, I can't do that sober. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's just something that's kind of come about like from TV and stuff oh. like that. But when the breathalyzer was invented, it really made this because one of the reasons like it was this this chemist just basically came up with a way to um like found out this relationship between blood alcohol content and um a certain like enzyme in your breath 
and then used a particular type of test, which basically means like, so the reason you have to blow into a breathalyzer, what it gets its name from, is because you're blowing the stream of your air from your lungs out. Your lungs have this really um, rapid interaction with your bloodstream because of the alveoli. And what it runs is, it runs over like a fluoroscope. And so it basically, it's the fluorescence of a particular element. And then when it, if you blow through it and there's certain things in your breath, it will react with that amount of light and it will change the light that's being hit on the sensor on the other end. Oh. And there's a relationship between, so there's a, you know, like there's a linear relationship or a, well, a mathematical relationship that you can transform between the content in your blood, what comes out of your breath, how it affects the fluorescence, and then you calculate out to your blood alcohol content. Uh, there is no such device for cannabis use at the, at present. So it's very similar to what it was like in the 50s and 60s when there were a lot of issues with drinking and driving in the yeah. States and well, and anywhere there were cars was because you couldn't test people easily. So the same way now, it's very subjective. It's a roadside test. I've seen things where it's like, um, they'll make you stick out your tongue and they'll like look at how dry your tongue is or if you have like, sometimes weed smokers will talk about like having the dry pasties mouth. or dry yeah. mouth. <laughs> and so they'll say like, that's one of the things, but it's incredibly, incredibly subjective, which means that it's ultimately up to like the arresting officer. And, and like, when people get nervous, they get dry mouth. Oh, a hundred percent. And then, and then so much like the early days of alcohol, the only way to get a test, the only way to find out if there's marijuana in your system is to do a blood test. In, in sort of the opposite problem as with uh, alcohol before the breathalyzer was that the amount of time that it would typically take to get someone from wherever you pulled them over to a facility where you could take a blood test and then process that blood. I mean, once it's out of the body, it's the alcohol's not breaking down, but to then process it, usually by that time, someone alcohol, you know, an hour or two hours, your alcohol yeah. content starts to come down quite a bit because your body, pro our bodies process it so quickly. But with marijuana, typically the metabolites that come from smoking cannabis remain in your system for like months at a time. Is that because they go into the fats? Well, that's part of it too, right? So like they're, um, like you, that wouldn't really be what would be tested in your blood and stuff oh, okay. like that. But it, marijuana just shows up in the human system for a really, really long time. Uh, and thing, especially things like urine. So I don't know if blood is a great one for like, oh, this is how long after you last smoked, but there's no great like system of measurement for it. So a lot of the testing would basically like, if you're someone who smoked pot like the last month, it'll basically like show that you smoked pot. There's no way to tell how much you had, mm. right? Again, the strength of the breathalyzer is it quantifies right there in the officer's yeah. hand, like how how much you smoke even you can buy these little things on amazon now like breathalyzers oh. on your for your keychain and they're a hilarious little party trick they're a lot of fun <laughs> at parties but it's a good thing to have as well because then you can you know if you've ever had that moment of like well i've only had three drinks and it's been a couple hours so i should be okay to drive well if you have a little breathalyzer on your keychain you just test it out and you go oh, okay no i'm below illegal and then i'm gonna go home. i wonder if that has to do with like our bodies would perceive alcohol as like poison right and it's trying yeah. to like process it and get it out whereas we have the endocannabinoid system, THC and CBD and stuff. They're processed more like, like endogenous mm -hmm. things produced in our body. So our body's not like trying to expel it. Yeah. And you're right. It does. It ends up in our lipids and our fat yeah. systems. So, and then, like, so it would get like taken up by the lipids and the fats and then they'd be really re-released and all that. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And one of the common tests that's used for um, weed as well is testing someone's hair. Oh, but most people's hair is longer than the last day or month. So <laughs> if you take someone's hair and they've smoked marijuana at any point in the time that they've been growing their hair out, it's going to come up as a positive test. And some, and as well, like, again, like 
in terms of testing for like performance enhancing drugs. Cause weed is a performance enhancing drug because it can help control like your mood. So if you're doing a sport that requires, so this has happened a lot with, <laughs> this is a bit of a stereotype, but it's happened a lot with certain snowboarders or skiers uh, yeah. in, in particular events. In Distance the runners and stuff too. Exactly. Is because I would argue that there's not, it's not really a performance enhancing. Like if you smoke weed right before you did like the biggest run of your entire life, you would probably mess it up. But like, but if you're going to run for like 50 kilometers and you just need to stay calm mm -hmm. or take a, or, you know, it's basically taking a bunch of painkillers. You're yeah, taking the away the, the, yeah. the pain response, the part of your body that's like, oh my God, we've run 40 kilometers and I'm done <laughs> and you're getting rid of it. But yeah. yeah so but the problem is with those types of tests is you're going to turn up like the most minute amounts of metabolites because the way that testing is done, you are going to get like, oh, there's like the tiniest bit of weed metabolite in this guy's system. He's been smoking weed. He's using performance enhancing drugs. We're taking your gold medal. So there's a lot of problems with like how weed is tested today. It's just not so easy. And it's just not as easy to find. And again, it took till the 70s for the, the chemistry, the chemical know-how, the um, technology and the like understanding of alcohol metabolism to create this device yeah. that you know has saved thousands of lives and after like decades of societal pressure too a hundred percent there was a huge yeah. amount of um societal momentum and research momentum to figuring out this problem yeah yeah it was a big engineering problem with the time yes mm -hmm. um, and i mean since we mentioned smoking and like there's not a breathalyzer for this mm -hmm. do not smoke weed and drive it's, it's like drinking and driving. Um, it, it impairs your responses. I've known people who say that they are better drivers when they're high because they're more cautious. <laughs> I am personally of the opinion that it's a drug that impacts your, your ability to be present for a lot of people, your ability to notice like details and stay present and stay focused, and it can impair your reaction time. So any of those things, you need them for driving. Driving is an incredibly dangerous activity. It's one of the most dangerous things that all of us do on a daily basis. Don't... It's also... An inc people forget how incredibly complicated driving is yeah. as a task because we do it so often. But it is. Yeah. It's one of the most like co cognitively complicated yeah. and taxing tasks that a human being can do because you're controlling all these different things at the same time. Looking out your side mirror, looking out your rearview mirror, looking ahead. Mm. If you're on a road with multiple lanes, you're like watching all the cars around you. There might be music. If you got kids, they're screaming in the back seat. You're thinking about what you're going to do when you get to the place you're going. You might be hungry. It's raining. Like there's so many things that could happen. So that's why there's a lot of push right now from governments of like, don't smoke weed and drive. It's legal, but it's still an altering substance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a lot about like using cannabis in general. And so to wrap up here, we're going to talk a little bit about like cannabis in kind of today's modern world, since it's been legalized, how legalization has sort of affected our understanding of cannabis, what we use it for. The discourse around cannabis has changed so much, especially in Canada in the last three years. And like kind of where this is going next. And like how cannabis, especially in Canada and some of the states where it's been legalized, is really being used as this case study to show like why the decriminalization of like other scheduled drugs mm -hmm. might be called for and how it could lead to better health outcomes and better societal outcomes. But where do you want to start? Uh, I think, well, I mean, legalization leads to better knowledge, right? Like we're saying, if you take it away from being something like a schedule one, you can actually study it. And then you can look into effects like there's uh there's an actual link that I found out about, like when I was back in high school, there was a nature of things on cannabis, Na the nature of things with David Suzuki, um, wonderful Canadian show. And it talked about uh, marijuana use 
and the onset of schizophrenia in people. And this is definitely one that other people were like, the the really high proponents of marijuana were like, no, no, that's just scare, like fear mongering. But there's actually are links to earlier onset of psychosis or schizophrenia in certain people if they use cannabis, especially before age 16. So uh, if people are using it frequently or daily and they're smoking high potency, so high THC strains especially, and before age 16, and there's a genetic or family link of, of with schizophrenia, which is often linked through families. Um, so it's a, uh, in a study I found, while the degree of this association is inconsistent, studies suggest cannabis users with a family history of psychosis are 2.5 to 10 times more likely to develop psychotic disorders compared to non-users with a family history. So another part of a PSA, if you do have a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia, be more cautious if you're interested in marijuana. Yeah, I mean, these are some, like, and again, these are, it's early days in some of these studies. Like, those studies have been out for a while. There's always been this kind of causal link that they've sort of suggested. But, like, you know, one scientific paper does not make all all science. So, it's, there's a lot of, like, studying to be done. But this is sort of the advantage of now having it declassified the way it has been is it's so much easier to do this type of research whereas before it was basically impossible to do this type of research and it was hard to do this type of research ethically because when you do research on humans the ethical standards are very high and if there's risk for harm where you know if weed is legal illegal and you can be put in jail for using it well then there's a huge amount of potential ethical harm Mm -hmm. to studying people who smoke weed because you run the risk of exposing those people if you're not very careful with your data. Absolutely. And even the researchers, like, to take on studying an illegal substance can impact your ability to work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's legal. So those concerns are slowly ebbing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're learning a lot more. Um, I think some of the benefits, like we talked about with, like, the edibles, you know what you're getting. You know, like, you... (laughs) It's, it's consistent in quality, it's consistent in amount and in potency, and the knowing what you're getting, you can get the type of weed that will work for you. Like we said, the, the terpenes and stuff, like, there's a lit, they have not been researched enough, but now it's legalized, they probably can, but you can still go in and talk to people at a dispensary who have enough of the anecdotal evidence to say, okay, a lot of people who smoke this type of weed say it helps them relax, but other people say that this type of weed is good for them. So if you're going in and you're like, I have anxiety. I don't want something that's going to make me paranoid because there's definitely strains of weed that have a tendency to make people feel more paranoid. So you would want to avoid those. But back when it was legal, you're just getting from your like regular dealer. You might have a choice of like two different strains and you might know the name, but like that's it. So you have no information. And the street weed was really high potency, like because they were all going for high THC because it was just what would get people high. Whereas now you can go for balanced strains. You can be like, I want to feel like, like one beer's worth of high, you know, (laughs) whereas before it was always like, you're doing shots, man. Yeah. And I mean, well, and even (laughs) to the point, right? Like back when you bought from a dealer or whatever, you had no idea. Like no one, no one would know how how potent it was. It could have been oregano. You'd you'd often go by smell, be like, oh, this smells really strong. So it must be strong. Um, Dank weed, bro. Or in like, even to the point, right? Like then, you know, um, there's often this conversation of like, is weed stronger now than in the 70s and 80s? And (laughs) like the one study that I found was like, it was like, ah, we've like, we've like tested all the batches of weed that we've seized in the US for the last 20 (laughs) years. Like we've seen that it's gone like this 12%, this 12 times increase or whatever. Um, But what people often forget too, and then like even now, like I would argue that like the highest potency weed you can get today in Canada 
is probably way more potent than the highest quality weed you could have gotten on the street back in the day. Oh, yeah. Like, the 60s, like, the Summer of Love Hippies, were smoking, like, weak weed for today's standards. Oh, not, like, not back in the day, like, the 60s. Like, like 10 years ago when it was still oh, illegal. Oh, yeah. Because the way, one, because now you can legally cultivate it. You don't have to yeah. be hiding it in some, like, you know, suburban home <laughs> that you're trying to, like, hide from the RS RCMP. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can genetically test which strains and cross them to get exactly what you want. Exactly. And you're testing it all the time. Um, and, like, we, and then, yeah, back in the 60s and 70s, like, and even again in the 2010s and stuff like that when it was illegal, like, if you're growing weed, like, outside and in non-optimal conditions, because you're, mm -hmm. again, you're trying to grow a very specific part of the plant. Yeah. Um, you're really trying to put all of the plant's energy towards making bud and flowers. Um, when you grow it in, like, they used to call it, like, ditch weed. Um, <laughs> and that would be the stuff that someone would grow in, you know, the drainage ditch in on the farm that it would be kind of hidden from the road so no one would see it. But would get a lot of water. Exa exactly. <laughs> but now, you know, you're going inside with hydroponics and lights that are on special timers yeah. so that you're giving the plant its optimal day-night cycle and all these things. And then again, yeah, you're testing it. And now you're saying, like, we can say with consistency that, like, this strain of weed and this particular batch of this strain is all within this realm of potency. Um, but, yeah, so suffice to say, like, it is definitely stronger than it used to be. Yeah. But you also now have the option of the strength of weed that you smoke or consume, whereas you didn't have that option yeah. even 10, even five years ago yeah. you didn't have that option unless you were, uh, you know, unless you had a medical prescription. Yeah. Yep. And you can get... Again, the balanced strains, right? Like you yeah. can get, you know, the CBD content in addition to the THC. So you're bought like. And that switch in emphasis from having high THC, low CBD to get you like messed up. Yeah, get you so high. To like, well, if you're going to consume this the same way that you might want to have like a recreational beer on a Friday night, well, then you don't want it to like, you don't want it to be so strong. You yeah, know? you don't want to be stuck in the couch yeah. just eating chips. Or you might be looking for different things. Maybe yes. you are looking to be stuck in the couch eating chips. Or maybe you're like, no, we're going out. I don't want to be asleep at the table <laughs> while everyone's having fun. Right. I would like to participate in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you can get those sorts of positive effects. There's also, by making it legal and making it more accessible, you could re it, it might reduce the interest in or the market for synthetic cannabis, which it might be called, it's called Spice or K2. And now the... Shatter. That was big. Right before oh, cannabis yeah. was legalized, there was, um, Shatter became very, very popular. Basically what Shatter is, um, it's crystallized THC, but the X to do the extraction. So it's really, really high potency, which was like Super one of the potency. issues. But the bigger issue was that in the same way that like meth labs are really dangerous oh. because one of the process, one of the chemical reactions that you typically do to take Sudafed into methamphetamine, um, for, to not go into the chemistry too much. You can watch Breaking Bad for that. It's very accurate. Um, although they specifically leave out certain steps in Breaking Bad because because they were being scientifically accurate. So they had to kind of have certain steps oh. that they never really talked about. I appreciate that. Because like people could literally replicate what they were doing. Although you couldn't do it the way that he does because of the like, to get that particular precursor would be like nearly impossible. Mm. Um, but you can do it from Sudafed. But one of the stages is like really volatile and it'll basically like explode mm. at, at like a moment's notice. But with Shatter, one of the ways that you had to, ex to extract the THC, a lot of what they would use would be butane because you oh. need a non-polar solvent 
butane is something that's very easy to get over the counter because you buy it for like camping stoves and yeah. stuff. And what it would do, those people doing this in their garage, all of a sudden the garage fills up with butane fuel. You know, these people are probably also <laughs> smoking weed, newsflash. <laughs> Using their product. And there were, there were, there were, there were garage explosions and house fires that were being caused by people producing shatter. Uh, mm-hmm. So dangerous to produce, also dangerous to do. Like Spice yeah. and K2 have dangerous, potentially life-threatening impacts on people that has been studied whereas like natural cannabis it is not a harmless drug no drug is harmless and you can definitely overuse it you can definitely abuse it you can definitely get into addictive addictive situations with it but weed's not going to kill you right whereas the synthetic ones they're very dangerous Mm -hmm. don't do them (laughs) you'll often hear this discourse around like oh well like weed's not addictive but like weed 100 percent. there are 100 percent people out there that like will can and will become addicted to weed 100 and and this happens with every substance but the reason where that kind of misnomer comes from a lot is because things like nicotine or opioids they're chemically addictive yeah your body becomes dependent on these things to feel caffeine caffeine is the perfect example super addictive it is chemically addictive because your body as it processes is caffeine produces more of the protein that processes caffeine which means you need more caffeine to get the same effect that's why people when they get on the train of i need to have coffee in the mornings have such a hard time getting off of it because your body is literally it's expecting it now and it's producing so much of this protein that's why they're so miserable when they are getting off of it exactly and but weed because of the endocannabinoid system thc is not a dependence forming drug in the same way that things like opioids or nicotine are but you will like with anything you can get addicted to the habit of yeah. doing it people get addicted to the gym people get addicted to healthy stuff all the time yeah. and at some point an addiction becomes unhealthy an obsession yeah. becomes unhealthy yeah and it, regardless of how healthy the um the triggering behavior is absolutely and it can especially something like like cannabis that helps you helps a lot of people relax mm-hmm. and kind of ignore their problems for a little bit. If you all of a sudden go off of it, then now you have to think about all your problems. And if it was helping you kind of control your brain, now your brain is unsubstance controlled. Mm-hmm. And so you have to deal with that. And with its appetite uh, inducing elements as well, I've uh, heard of users who used a lot and then when they tried to taper off or they tried to like go cold turkey, they couldn't eat. They had yeah, no they, appetite. Yeah. Because they were so like dependent, basically, on the the weed to make them feel hungry. Yeah. So de- <laughs> not a danger-free drug either. Like with any drug, mm-hmm. drugs all come with risks. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, having this kind of like another legal substance, it could also potentially help people use less alcohol. Yeah, no? there's there's a big suggestion now, especially like with weed being touted for its um, analgesic effects, so its painkilling effects. Yeah. Is there's a lot to sh- like there is even there's um review there's evidence that's starting to come out that's showing that like the legalization of weed does reduce like the dependence of like on certain like painkillers and analgesics in like yeah. like large scale data sets and communities. And it's all natural, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that is like sometimes it's a big big deal for people. Yeah. But um the interesting thing about like to talk about like legalization versus decriminalization versus like illegal drugs that I think is like we've been kind of hinting at the whole time, right? Is that it's one is the study of these things. Yeah. And, you know, the political movements that made weed illegal in the early 1900s 
um, were so powerful and then they became so ingrained in the way that we thought about this substance versus like you compare it to things that like, you know, tobacco or alcohol, which have these extremely long histories in humanity and like these traditional uses and like there's a large societal acceptance towards these substances, which are the same and arguably more harmful even. Incredibly dangerous. Right. Especially alcohol. Exactly. And so there's this long-standing history, but because they were so accepted in society, it is so difficult to make those things illegal. Like it would be nearly impossible to make cigarettes illegal today, even though they like continue to restrict the ability to get, get cigarettes. So there's lots of tools that governments can use to help like basically wean their populations off smoking. Yeah. But like they tried to make alcohol legal in the yeah. States in the 1920s. And literally all it did was give rise to like organized crime. Yeah. It just made it more dangerous yeah. because people still wanted it. So then they would get it where they could from like bootleg places, which means you're not controlling quality anymore. And you can't, and if you do get like a bad batch, it's not like you can go to the mob and be like, hey, you sold me bad alcohol. They'll be like, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who are you going to call? The cops? Exactly. Laugh at you. Right. So it, so prohibition has really been shown and like a the history, the legacy of the war on drugs, like a hundred percent has shown that like these types of prohibitions don't work. They criminalize users, which are oftentimes, especially for addictive things like, uh, crack cocaine, methamphetamines, things like that. They're often like more the victims of Absolutely. these institutions than they are like yeah. the perpetrators of violent crime. And a lot like of that. people who get addicted to dangerous or get addicted to drugs, it's because they got trauma, unresolved mm -hmm. trauma yeah. in unsupported ways. And then they're criminalized and they're put to jail yeah. and that's on their record. And then they can't move up in society because they have this record. So then what are they going to do? They're probably going to feel hopeless, which is going to perpetuate the cycle of doing drugs. Mm -hmm. And, and again, like to like, it's it changes our like stigma to how these things yeah. are used right um there's often a lot of negativity around uh safe consumption sites as particularly for opioids and i understand these concerns like i myself have lived near um safe consumption sites and like they do like they, there are um there are environmental impacts yeah. to having these types of facilities of around. course but the thing that people always forget, and this is one I've started to see a lot in online discourse that I really like, is that if you go to a bar and you have three, four, five drinks, and even if you go to a bar and the, the bartender eventually cuts you off or whatever, you are at a safe consumption site. People forget too that like bars hold a level of liability for drunk drivers. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a bartender and I overserve Sarah and then she drives home and something tragic happens... I am I am partially liable for what happened as well because it's my responsibility as the the purveyor of the safe consumption site, the person who's controlling your access to the drug, to know when you have reached a point of inebriation where you are no longer you should no longer be being served. Yeah. And so bars are safe consumption sites, it, it, but because alcohol has this societal acceptance in the way that we use it to the point where most people that say like, well, I don't drink then have to give some, you know, <laughs> 1300 word thesis on why they don't drink. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't think about it the same way versus like, well, heroin is illegal. So I don't want a safe consumption site in my community or a needle drop. Like I, you know, I've seen like needle drop mailboxes at parks and people complain about them. And I'm like, well, would you rather, where would you rather the needles be yeah. <laughs> all over the ground at yeah. this park? Because like, believe it or not, people are going to keep using them. Like yeah. it's, you know, making the activity illegal doesn't stop the behavior. Yeah. There's a, uh, uh, an idea that I've seen going around about safe consumption sites and alcohol that I think makes a lot of, that made a lot of sense to me was like, if you were like 
as a teenager and you and your friends wanted to drink and your parents or one of your friend's parents was like, you know what, I'd rather you not drink, but if you're going to drink, do it in the house where at least we can, we can keep an eye on you and we can keep you safe and we can know generally like how much you're consuming. And if anything goes wrong, we're here. That's a safe consumption site, right? And, and that's a way that I think a lot of people were introduced to alcohol. And it's way safer than, like, if you're in a group of friends and no one has that safe situation at home, then what are you going to do? You're going to go and, like, find a field somewhere and get drunk, and now you're out drunk in public mm -hmm. as a teen, which is, like, not safe. Well, like, I have friends that grew up in the States, and, like, the legal drinking age there is 21. And I've heard stories of, like, the things that they would have to do, like, as teenagers to yeah. try to get alcohol. And then the incredibly dangerous situations they're putting themselves in yeah. because, like, they're lying to their parents about where they are. Yeah. But then things go awry. Then nobody knows where they are. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're in this extremely dangerous situation where, like, but nobody, everybody thinks you're someplace safe. And so there's no kind of... There's no search party coming out for you yeah. um, because everybody sort of and like people aren't going to find out to the next morning that something's gone wrong. And then, too, among teenagers, especially, there's so much fear of reprisal that people yeah. won't seek help when someone's too drunk or those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, just since we're talking about like drinking in teenagers, that also like alcohol is a legal drinking age mm -hmm. or legal age and cannabis does as well. I forget what it is in Canada. It's 18. 18. Well, it depends on the jurisdiction. Oh, right. <laughs> so like, yeah. So in Alberta, it's 18 in, uh, Ontario, it's 19. Cause that's the right. legal drinking age in right. Ontario. Right. In Quebec, interestingly, it's 18 to drink in uh, Quebec, but it's 19 for weed. Oh, yeah. just an um, interesting little thing. Yeah. And with the way cannabis does impact your brain and it can yes. impact brain development. So if you are, uh, under 18, I'd recommend don't become a heavy user, you know, like with alcohol, if you're, you're probably, <laughs> a lot of people are going to try it and pretending that they're not is just pretending. Um, so if you're going to try it, be it set in setting, start low, go slow. Um, but the, the effects on your brain, on your developing brain can, it can be damaging. So mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. And this is something that will be really interesting to see over the next 10 years. Absolutely. Is the research will continue to grow. And then we'll get more and more of these like longitudinal studies of people yeah. over many, many years where we'll really be able to start to see like, you know, obviously they hid, um, you know, for a long time, the tobacco lobbies were trying to, um, you know, silence a lot of the work and research that was showing that tobacco was harmful. Well, they still do it. But it did still take decades of medical research yeah. to understand that, yes, like 100%, like we are not kidding around. We yeah. know that this is going on. And that's kind of the stage we're at right now with marijuana research on, on all aspects of it, both the harmful effects and the proposed medical benefits of some of these things, especially like the terpenes and stuff like that, yeah. is it will take time for these things to be revealed as like pseudoscience or like true science rooted in like rigorous study. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And as we learn more, it'll be interesting to see the effect it has on society. And in particular, I think of like when... The cannabis was legalized there's still people in prison where cannabis is legal who are in prison on cannabis related charges mm -hmm. uh they got hit during the war on drugs and are still there and then you also have the people who helped keep cannabis like alive and and doing the anecdotal research and talking to people and getting it to the place where it could be legalized who should have then kind of had their like had their heyday who have been pushed out by the giant companies who are now making bank absolutely um so it'll be interesting to see Kind of where society goes and where the science and the research on cannabis goes from here. Yeah. Well, I think that takes us through today's topic. Mm. 
yeah, so um, next time, I think we're going to find... I did... Um, so the James Webb, which we kind of hinted at last time as being a potential topic, and we kind of did this one as a bit of a bridge topic to burn time until it's launched. <laughs> um, it is slated to be launched in a launch window over the week of December 18th. So oh. I think we'll kind of talk about that next because there's also been a number of like space things in the news yeah. lately. Uh, NASA launched a rocket to try to deflect an asteroid in a real like Armageddon-esque mission, which is yeah. really cool. Uh, and then there was also um, hypersonic missile testing is uh, really big in the news right now. Uh, there, Those are uh, in, like those are missiles that travel at uh, five times the speed of sound or greater. So scary. And Russia recently used one to destroy a satellite in orbit, uh, one mm -hmm. of their satellites. But it's created, uh, like we talked about in the, space, in the space junk episode, <laughs> it's created this storm of space junk that has had like severe impacts on operations on the International Space Station. And it's caused quite a few um, wrinkles in international uh, relations. So I think we'll kind of take, we'll take some time. We'll do a space topic again. I know it keeps coming up, but people are fascinated with space. So. Space. Um, yeah. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, once again, check out our cross-promotion partner, uh, Heat of the Moment Season 2, uh, produced by Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds. That's there on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. So check them out. And they actually are like a hopeful take on climate change and mm -hmm. showing people who are actually doing some cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So check them out. Uh, all right. Uh, Sarah, promote your stuff. Yeah, you, you can also check out my other stuff. Uh, Third Sock from the Sun. The video's on YouTube, thirdsockfromthesun.com. If you want a nice hub for all the stuff, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And, I mean, if you just want no news about the podcast, follow me on Instagram because I always post about the podcast. And mm -hmm. we release new episodes. Perfect. All right. Uh, and make sure you give us a like or a follow on uh, at Temporary Expert or whichever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to leave a review that helps us reach bigger and bigger audiences. I have a metric goal for when we hit one year, which is in a couple of months. So if you share with your friends and you like and you subscribe might help us hit that target. So Ooh. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, awesome. Well, I think that's it. So yeah. from all of us here at Temporary Experts, She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening.